Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host Oliver Jones. This conversation is with David Hickson. David's 20-year career contains some remarkable highs, overseeing LastMinute.com's $1.2 billion exit, merging MyDeco with Made.com, raising £2 million from Adidas for Tribe Sports, and now, as part of the founding team alongside Brent Hoberman and Henry Lane Fox of award-winning Accelerator Incubator Founders Factory, where we're fortunate enough to record these podcasts. But this glittering CV, which David describes as a drunkard stumble rather than a best-laid plan, is only part of the story. Despite the security of a wonderful career and loving family, David has been hospitalized by acute mental illness on three occasions, a story which he bravely shares at the end of the episode. This is by far our longest podcast, a testament to the breadth of David's experience. His story and life learnings are entertaining and thrilling, while his strong views on the early stage startup ecosystem and fundraising will be of specific interest to entrepreneurs, investors, and corporates alike. So without further ado, we bring you David Hickson. Okay, today we're joined by David Hickson. David is a serial entrepreneur and currently head of strategic development at Founders Factory. Uh, David, it wasn't far for you to come, but thanks for joining us. <laughs> no problem. Literally, my desk is over there, so I sort of walked around. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very good to have you here. And we want to focus the discussion around your role at Founders Factory and also what you've described as the art and science of fundraising. Yeah. But first, for our listeners, it'd be useful to contextualise you as to why you're well-placed to discuss these things. So perhaps I could invite you to take us on a, a whistle-stop tour of your entrepreneurial career so far. Okay, cool. So I think about this in a sort of a funny way because <clears throat> one of the things that I often find when you hear kind of a podcast like this is that the interviewee can kind of tell a beautiful story of their journey through tech from when they were like the hacking at school to the various different things. Whereas I didn't, I was nothing like that, right? So at school, which was in the 70s and 80s, it's quite a long time ago now, hmm. I wouldn't say I was at all interested in tech because it didn't really exist in the 70s and 80s. You, know, you had these micro PCs and, you know, you're either a, a Commodore guy or a spectrum guy and actually I, I got a degree in economics and then I sort of converted to law um, and then in the 90s I, I started working for a, a law firm and then I kind of got my first break when it comes to tech in that I was seconded to Virgin Interactive and Virgin Atlantic and I was there for sort of seven or eight months as, as a secondee. And then the head of legal from Virgin Atlantic went to join this sort of brand new shiny company called lastminute.com <laughs> that at the time was it was just post their IPO and like um, you guys are probably too young to remember this um, you couldn't move sort of like pictures of kind of uh, Brent and Martha in um, like either hanging out of taxi cabs or doing what you know doing whatever they were doing and she called me up and said look David we've just gone through this IPO we've raised some enormous amount of money on like zero revenues do you want to come and join me and like and help me I uh, it took me about a third of a second to say yes um, and I'm still unsure now as to why I did say yes um, but I certainly, rec I certainly recall calling my dad and saying, oh, dad, like I've just been offered this job. By the way, dad, you can't say I can't do it because I'm already doing it. But I've just been offered this job to go and work for lastminute.com. Of course, at that time, I just had this amazing job working yeah. for this kind of entertainment um, law firm. Can I swear? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 um, and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, you, you've just qualified. You know, absolutely fucking nothing. 
you're going to go and work for this thing that all the news, even then, even just immediately without the first couple of months after the IPO, everyone was talking about how lastminute.com wasn't going to kind of work out. And, right. this, and he's, like, well, he's like, like, what are you doing? So I obviously, in this kind of classic, take the circumstance and you pretend that it was all beautifully thought through. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, well, you know, this this internet thing, I think it's going to be a thing. And like, even if this lastminute.com thing um, doesn't work out, I'm kind of ahead of the game. I'm going to be part of the industry that's going to define the future. Um, the parents' pitch. Yeah, the parents', <laughs> the parents pitch. And um, and he was like, okay, well, actually, that, that, that's fairly... Re-. Of course, I made the whole thing up on the spot because the truth was I was like, stars in my eyes. This is the thing that everybody's talking about. And, and that's really why I did it. Now, that turned out to be the not the single best thing that's happened to me. But I think in terms of the way I think about my career... I think it was the single best thing that ever happened to me because I kind of fell into it by accident. But it wasn't long that I was there. And I went in as kind of legal associate or whatever it was. But the head of legal herself, she left after six months. I remember Brent and Martha, they said to me, oh, David, um, we know you're only six months qualified, but would you be our head of legal? And I was like, you do know that I know absolutely fucking nothing, right? (laughs) And they were like, and they were like, yeah. And, and, And Martha said to me, said, yeah. And she was whatever it was, 20, 26, 27. She says, well, I know nothing and I'm global MD. And like, Brent knows nothing. And mm-hmm. he's like the CEO. He said, you can know nothing and you can be the head of legal. And I was like, okay, look, here's the deal. I'll do it. You're not allowed to call me head of legal. I'll be like legal counsel or something. But I will have no, I will just, I will do it. Because it was a, notwithstanding all the kind of the, the hoo-ha around it, it was still a startup mm-hmm. scale. It was only like 20 months old. I always find it incredible that at 20 months old with like, not much in terms of revenue. We also used to spend this figure called the total transaction value, which was quite big, that we were raised £125 million at IPO. This was a true bubble. If anyone thinks that there's a bubble right now, they have no idea what they're talking about. Mm. And then suddenly I was the head of legal for it, or I was running the legal department. And again, what I very quickly began to realise is, yes, I had to sort out the legal function, but I, I was no longer working with lawyers. That was the, that was the first thing. And, I've, and I realized that there was this whole other world that you can operate in as, as developing your own career that was not the thing that you, you were thinking kind of linearly around the sort of things that you might want to do. Oh, oh, let's go into the professions. Let's be a lawyer. Let's be a doctor. Let's be an accountant. And suddenly I'm working in this world where I'm, I'm not working with any of those people. I'm working with like creative people, marketing people, digital people, techies, but techies and marketing and product people who, because they were dealing with this in this new frontier, didn't have a fucking clue what they were doing. Nobody knew what they were doing. Mm. And then in the end, they would do these deals and go away and I'd have to write it up. And I'd like, wait a minute, this is not the, what I want to do. So I started realizing that being the lawyer, and this was around about 2003, was not what I wanted to do. Um, and because everyone was having, like, was having so much more fun than me. And so I remember going to Brent and saying, you know, I know I'm running the legal department. By the way, we've now got, and there were like three proper lawyers that really want to be lawyers that were like within the team and stuff. And, and he, again, he was kindly saying, well, we still need you to like be in control of that function. But if you want to do some other things, then we you can start doing some other things. So again, this view were speaking to a real lawyer today, like doing things which were both legal and commercial. It's just in the old school way, kind of, I guess, pre-stop scale up it's just you just wouldn't do it it just wasn't wouldn't be done but of course i started doing it so i started yeah so i started doing things like helping buy and sell our jvs some of the more co- more corporate development things so it was more kind of deal making and that was really the i think that was really the um the the journey into moving away from 
being the lawyer into doing things which were not legal, but more closing deals. So I was there at lastminute.com. My last six months at lastminute.com was 2005. We sold that business for $1.1 billion to um, Sabre Travelocity. How, we were, how old were you at that point? Uh, um, maybe late 20s, something so like that. So my age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Um, and um, <laughs> don't be intimidated. Ah. <laughs> no, um, no um, literally it's not. But, but the point being is that all of it was confidential. We had, we had to do a whole bunch of stuff that we needed to do without telling anybody. So we had to spin sort of white lies into why we were doing this audit. You mean internally, blah. not internally, telling? Internally, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Whereas the deal was actually ran predominantly by our CFO and Brent, of course. And literally the day that we closed it, uh, sorry, completed it. So it was like buying a house. You sort of eat in inverted commas, exchange, and then you complete. And mm. the, there was a sort of, we had to go through a sort of regulatory process, which is why there was a gap of about three months. Now, during that three months, the Americans that bought us were started to drop in um, sort of senior team members that were going to kind of help us work out like, how they were going to run the business go forward. And I felt just in that three-month period that I was about to be boxed in Mm. to a to a job that I didn't want. They gave me, like, it was European legal counsel. I was going to be back into being a lawyer. It was a big job with a big salary. Mm. And I just thought, this is, I don't work in corporate. Like, this is not my thing. I do, we didn't call it scale-up then, by the way. We call them dot-coms. Yeah. But, like, I work in, not to be anachronistic, I, I work in dot-coms. And I knew it then, right? So notwithstanding, they gave me this great job. The day it completed, I handed in my resignation. Did you forego any rights that you had for vesting? Um, oh, no, 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 because all the point being is that because it was an exit, like everything had already vested. Right. Um, and obviously <laughs> there was a degree of comfort in handing my resignation after I'd, I mean, I didn't make, I didn't make the, the millions, but I, you know, for someone who was in his late 20s, I did okay. Yeah. Um, and I frankly spent the next sort of 12 months pissing up against the wall, um, um, which was a shitload of fun. And then kind of my next step was was when Brent started MyDeco, which kind of eventually evolved into May.com. Um, so he had, he had to work like a small earn out of, out of lastminute.com. And so we're talking about 2006 now. He gave me a call and said, look, I want to go again. Do you want to come in? And I specifically said to him, yes, but you know, Brent, I am no longer, remember, I'm no longer a lawyer. I will, I will do it, but I do not want to be a lawyer. He said, fine. We came up with this grand title, which was kind of corporate development which basically at the time was was he would go in he would do the big sale walk out the door and then I would effectively be in charge of raising the money although we did a little bit of obviously we did M&A at last minute we bought like 13 companies we did JVs international JV was talking about obviously au fait with doing corporate deals but actually early stage fundraising um, this was my first experience yeah. and this was great for me because mm -hmm. I'd kind of arrived in lastminute.com 20 months in so I hadn't done the first bit you probably won't even remember my decker but my decker did an amazing thing it like raised 12 and a half million and back in 2006 it was a lot, 12 and a half million was a lot of money mm -hmm. it still like, is it still is it still is right but it's, it's a bit like buying a footballer for 25 million quid these days it just feels like it's some average sort of you know yeah. Premier League player. Yeah. whereas 25 million quid five years ago like you were buying the best in Europe yeah. so we raised 12 and a half million quid in like 18 months of course, we had Brent and a $1.1 billion exit to, to sell, but there was a real process and we took it from some big European VCs and, we, and that was effectively my job. What um, was the time frame for taking on that 12 and a half million? That was over 18 months, I think. Yeah. Okay, so uh, and how many rounds? That was only two. That was only wow. two. So we did five wow. and seven and a half. Mm. Um, and then we did another smaller rounds after that. But the last deal that I did, we made a in inverted commas strategic investment in May.com, which I think if Brent was here, he would describe as 
more a merger or a, at the time it was it was more like a strategic investment but it, it, en- it ended up being more like a merger um, because a lot of the team in the end was obviously made because my deco was super hot by the way my deco was it wasn't the wrong idea it was the wrong time because yeah. there are equivalents right now like house which are worth in the billions that are doing exactly what my deck today. So what was my deco? So my deco was. Do you guys know what house it is? Mm-hmm. So like, do you know? No. So um, so it's it's basically what houses today, which is, it's kind of like a best way to describe it, like a Pinterest but for home design. It was let's just get people to create their sort of perfect home designs. Let's have a and in, and in, and again in two thousand six this was cool by the way. Um, let's have a kind of meta search. Um, for home products like furniture. And by the way, meta searches were massive in 2006. Mm, yeah. like, they still exist in sort of the money supermarket, which is more like arbitraging now, but like there were there were a legion others of these things in verticals, which are basically arbitraging Google. And again, because Google was the only access point in 2006 in terms of in terms of internet traffic. So it was, a, it was a great idea. And we also had, and again, this was cool in 2006, we built in Flash on the browser. Anyone who, um, in Flash, oh my God. Um, we built like a, a 3D planning uh, tool. And again, that was, an, that was a crazy piece of technology. It like cost mm. us in the millions to build. And it was on the browser, right? And it was built in Flash. And again, this is how you can be flanked by technologies. Not very many years later, Steve Jobs declares war on Flash and, you know, and blah, blah. So, but there was a lot of things that we were doing in my deco, which were the right things to do. They were just ahead of time. Now, and then we made this investment in May.com, which was just design products without the design prices, sort of direct from the, the same sort of Chinese factories that were making the, you know, this cool designer products that just that came without the brand and therefore it was like a third of the price, yeah. um, which was just, it was an idea that was just easier to execute on than some of this sort of more complicated things we've just been describing. Um, and in the end, obviously now made as incredibly successful. So so th- that was the last thing that I did for my deco because because then it was sort of the next step in my journey. I was extremely fortunate at my deco to meet the co-founder of Tribe Sports, um, which Steve uh, Reed, who uh, who is still my friend and fellow adventurer in various d- things that started because uh, you guys of course know that Steve is the co-founder and CEO of Simba, which Simba is doing, is doing incredibly well. Yeah, so that's, you know, I met, I met, um, I met, I met Steve at, and we, and we started Tribe Sports in back end of 2009. Mm-hmm. Which is where I met you. That's right. Which is where that's we where met. where we met Ed. Yeah, and Steve was, he was doing ultra marathons or something at the still time. Is, uh, yeah. Still is, yeah. Oh. Still um, is. And I remember thinking at the time that you guys were so, so grown up. And now hearing that you were very similar ages to what I am now is is hmm. alarming. Yeah, it's fascinating to, to think you've had so much experience in this space. It's quite rare to see people who went through that decade before 2010 came up. And as you say, you could see a lot of frustrations around the technology implementation. Actually, I've got a vi- little vignette that's going to help you contextualize that. Okay, so this is the fucking truth, right? Remember that conversation where I had with my dad when I'm like, I'm going to go and work for lastminute.com. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? I really was like in my late 20s. I was attracted by the the stories of the parties and this, that and the other, which by the way was kind of true, just so you know. After I'd accepted that job and even while I, I guess for the first few months that I was working at lastminute.com, and this is true, when I used to go down and used to stand on the platforms at the tubes, I used to look at the advertisements and I used to look to see if... The, wherever it was, had a website, like a .com, whatever, .co.uk, in the bottom right-hand corner, okay? Because this was 2000, right? And I still wasn't convinced that the web and the internet was going to be a resilient thing, mm. right? 
and here's I'm like I'm not like a late adopter. Of course, I wasn't. Like, I was a young guy in like mm. London. You know, I should have been like ahead of the curve and the stuff. And even someone like that who was working in the industry was still had to be convinced. Was looking for evidence that the web was going to be a thing. I always find that's that like that's super interesting for people to know because we can think anachronistically that it's an it was never it was inevitable or like everybody knew even in two thousand that it was going to be a thing. When you're in it and you're at the time and all you've ever known is something else, mm. like until you're in it and used to it, and you, you sometimes you have to convince yourself there's going to be a thing. So, so that's, that, I guess that's to your point is that. Well, then it cut in for the next thing to accept and understand and get on board with was with smartphone and penetration from 2007 was then that kind of caught up to people with mass hysteria come 2012, 2013, where everybody was building an app. But it, again, you saw got to see the same lag phase because when I started raising money for startups in 2010. Not many of the businesses coming out were apps. It was still a lot of um, software. That's actually a genius segue point into Tribe Sports, right? Like, so bearing in mind that I have now been in this whole kind of startup scale-up world for eight or nine years. I've raised, we've raised VC. We're like, we've had a 1.1 billion exit. Like you said, oh, you guys feel very old and super sophisticated. Here's the thing. In 2009, Steve and I decide that we are going to build a vertical social network for sports people, mm. right? On the fucking web, okay? On the web, right? 2009, okay? So it was a... We could, these days you would call it a web app. In those days it was still a website. But here's the, th here's the thing. That was entirely zeitgeist, right? So what I mean by that is that sort of thing did attract funding because the purest, the purest web-based or internet business model out there at the time was TripAdvisor, mm. right? And TripAdvisor, and I, used to, and I used to sell this in my pitches, TripAdvisor were doing, that they were doing around about a billion dollars worth of revenue, right? At a net profit, profit margin of like 60%, okay? Mm. And actually, if you think about it, if it, that totally makes sense because Google was the only place that you could, like there's no such thing as Facebook. I mean, there was Facebook was around, but like, in like still then, like Google was the de facto place that you could get your internet traffic, like banner ads, all that crap didn't work. So it was Google. So here's TripAdvisor that was creating all this incredible content about that was merchandising hotels and all that incredible content was being created not by TripAdvisor but by the people that were going to those hotels, yeah. mm. right? And then obviously they were selling those hotels or whatever those trips or the flights or whatever. They weren't worried about any of providing the service to those contracts because that was all provided by the suppliers. They literally sat in the middle and they absolutely nailed Google SEO, natural search. So they didn't have to pay for the goddamn advertising because they were always ranking at the top. And they sat in the middle and they made a billion dollars at a net profit of like 60%. Hmm. So I used to go in and go, this is what we're going to do for sports stuff. Right? You're right. And how I would name that era now was the formation of the social web, where, where reviews and SEO came from content creation from your user bases. Yeah. We did see that and we saw a lot of people going, we're the next Facebook for, for yeah. a while up until about 2011. Yeah. Here's the fun point about that you were saying about the mobile. I had already been in a business that was flanked by tech. We'd already done that. Like I'd, I'd already experienced it. So we had built this web app and we had a decent community. And you, uh, yeah, you, Eddie, you, you might remember this. We, we took we took nearly $2 million from Adidas and in total it was around about $5 million. Like we had a decent business. In fact, it still does. Like Tribe Sports still exists, by the way, and it's doing it's, it's still doing pretty well. It's now ran by um, Emma Steve's wife so and she's doing an amazing job. So there's nothing wrong with Tribe Sports. It eventually pivoted into being direct-to-consumer performance sportswear and doing and doing great. But but here's the thing. Like that, obviously that wasn't the thing that Adidas wanted to invest in. They wanted to invest in this, in this kind of dream. So even Adidas, 
right? Like who gave us that investment. They bought into that idea, but of course no one, we should have, but of course it could have, should have, would have. It's easy to say in hindsight. It's too easy to say in hindsight. Mm-hmm. It's actually the lesson here was within about 18 months, like a couple of kids were building RunKeeper, Strava, whatever. So suddenly if you're trying to build a network on the web, all of that community just went onto these, in inverted commas, community on their app, like the run keepers yeah. and the Stravas in this yeah. world. And we were flanked by tech yet again, which is why we had to pivot to be in direct to consumer performance sportswear. So again, the lesson is like, if you're in tech, you can be flanked by tech. So unless you get to scale and you can, and you can create some of these, these network effects that everyone's been talking about, like you're in fucking trouble, right? Yeah. So, so grow, 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 get big, big, big. But yeah, I mean, you were saying before the, the podcast, it's a, it's a matter of timing, right? And I guess that's what, um, so if you were slightly off with the timing for tribe sports, I guess with Simba, you've got it pretty much spot on. So so again, it's a matter, is it a matter of timing? I can sit here, I can think about where I've ended up and I can create a beautiful narrative about the past of why things did or didn't happen, run the counterfactuals, and I could make it sound extremely coherent. Mm. And one of those is it's about, it was about timing. Of course, it, timing was some function of it, but there are probably, well, there are legion other functions of it. Mm. And in the end, it's and this is a famous, I'm going to butcher a Sam Altman quote, like the variables of success are like some function of team, some function of timing, some function of product, and then some random factor between zero and affinity, right? <laughs> so, so, but in the end, it's it's some combination of an, like an enormous amount, and like working out which one is, is frankly, it's impossible. Right? Yeah. Um, but coming back to your original, I got distracted here, is to contextualize why I've got experience for helping startups yeah. raise money. So so after Tribe Sports started, like all companies that just become a base hit and not a, um, not a home run, it had to consolidate, get rid of its costs. Um, and by the way, as the founders, and we, were, we Steve and I were one of four founders, Andrew and Jen were the other two, the last people to get paid, if you're, if you're a real founder, it, are the founders, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so notwithstanding, Tribe Sports did pretty well, for a while there, and I mean, it, well, coming up to nearly two years, like we didn't get paid, right? We got or we got paid some sort of peppercorn, like a tiny amount. Mm. And by that time, I'm kind of like in my late thirties, you know. It's like I remember I, there was like an there was a point, and I tried to do a couple of other things. I, I tried to do a couple of things. I tried to raise a graphene fund. Would you believe? Do you guys know anything about graphene? I won't go. Well, let's not go there. Still would have been fucking amazing if I'd pulled it off, but I didn't. Anyway, and then around about the start of two thousand fifteen, by that time, my wife was pregnant with my second boy. She basically said to me, "Okay, look, um, we've got this tiny baby." Um, you're gonna have to go and get a job where you're gonna have to get paid a salary. Time to start pressing, stop pressing about. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, fuck. I'm like, what do you do with that? Right, like, like you go on Indeed, like um, failed entrepreneur, like done a bunch of things, like what? And um, I was like, what do you do with that? She's like, email Brent. <laughs> I was like, oh. I was like, like Brent, I like, I feel like the prodigal son with Brent. Like it's like. Brent, like, like I went off in a blaze of glory. I'm gonna do it myself, Brent. Like, you know, I don't need you anymore. Like, if you're like, you're the master. I'm the Padawan. And I'm gonna be the master too. Anyway, so I was like, hi, Brent. Um, <laughs> and, and at the time, actually, there was there was some news at the time about Henry Lane Fox. So Henry is the is the founder CEO of Founders Factory, and he's also a partner of Founders Forum. Um, Henry, of course, is Martha's brother, who, by the way, I did work sort of relatively briefly at LastMinute.com. Um, so I, I knew him, but not at all well. But I don't know if you know much about the Lane Foxes. Now, these are two of the brightest people who ever liked to meet. Martha, obviously, Baroness of Soho, super brilliant, super nice person. Like Henry, again, like super bright, 
their dad is like the, is Robin Lane for like I always say he's the longer te- longest tenured uh, professor at Oxford and people go oh that's amazing I said let me tell you what's more amazing about him I'm like he is so good that when he writes his kind of hi- like history books he gets on the Waterstones three for two that's how good he is right like you've got to be brilliant to get on the Waterstones three for two because they are the best sell right mm-hmm. he was um you know the Oliver Stone Alexander film because exactly. he specialises in Alexander the Great because um, I, I did classics at Oxford so I encountered him a bit. Um, his payment for being the expert consultant on that film was to be involved in the, the huge cavalry charge at, I think, the Battle of Galgamela or something. As an extra? Yeah, as an extra. <laughs> so, Ed, what do you know about the Battle of Galgamini? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm only, I have no fucking idea. So, um, so yeah, so, I, so anyway, so, I, so I'd seen this thing in the press about Brent and Henry doing something with Founders Forum. So Founders Forum was something that Brent did, um, started to do in 2006, at the same time as doing my deco, which was, it was just a dinner back in 2006, but it was for successful European technology entrepreneurs in order to get an invite. You had to have sold your company for more than $500 million, which obviously Brent could. And, the, and that was a fairly boutique group, as you can imagine, if you're mm, European, yeah. sold a technology business, and had people like Nicholas Sandstrom and, and, and people like that. And Michael Birch, I think, was on there. And that actually, Founders Forum now evolved into something which is much bigger, but it's an incredible, it's an, now an incredible kind of summit uh, meeting, but they have one typically in London and New York, but they've been around the world. It's still invite only. It doesn't really make a lot of money, but it's not supposed to. It gets great sponsorship. But the delegates are unbelievable. I don't, I mean, notwithstanding, I've now worked on and off with Brent for like like 19 years, mm-hmm. right? Like, I only get to go if I serve the volumes. It's like, I'm like, mm-hmm. please, can I come to Founders Forum? Like, if you work, like, you can come. I'm like, all right, right in the like, minute monkey or whatever. So <laughs> that's how good it is. They don't yeah. let like idiots like me in. Um, Did I see they, they have. Um high-ranking politicians at them sometimes. Maybe David Cameron was a... Oh, I thought you said high-ranking politicians. Sorry. No, oh, no, Brent's going to hate me for that. <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, so so uh, the, David Cameron was there. Um, last time we had Tony Blair yeah. and they had they had David Attenborough, for goodness sake. Talk about oh, who's, wow. of course, stratified above even uh, ex-prime uh, ex ministers. Um, but we've had Prince William. Um, we've had the other prince. We've had Simon Cowell. We've, it's in, like, we've had Eric Schmidt. We've had Demise Hazabis. Like, it's flipping incredible okay yeah. and to be in the room with those guys and like and like they're just sort of randomly chatting at the bar or whatever like just to you know just stand next to some of these people and like yeah. like order like your diet coke or something it's it's really a amazing and b quite intimidating um, well it's quite low-key it's not that braggadocious because i don't think many people have heard about it but also because they don't need to hear about it because it just happens without them and is that do they get together for the sake of getting together or is there an action plan do they tackle something each year or focus their attention on a a goal. I think they get together because they get together and actually to your point it is it's not because it's not a conference they don't sell tickets it's not like pitch competitions or anything quite so transactional mm. it's much more it's just a really good and there there are of course there are sessions and there's breakout sessions and they you know and they have you have the, like the things like the future of aging and, and you know some crazy people come onto that like um, uh, Daisy Robinson and, and, and like some just incredible delegates they come to just had a just meet with pretty cool people um, anyway so I'd seen that for Henry and Brent got together to kind of work on what else they can do with kind of the founders brand they would sort of create this thing founders intelligence sort of consulting which is which is now run by a chap called Rob Chapman it's really I went to school with Rob did you yeah yeah same year as me really yeah, good guy yeah love Rob you, he looks older than you by the way does he he's, yeah. he's got kids though yeah mm. um, but, he's, <laughs> really nice but he's a really lovely and then, and then there's Rob Haynes also. So they've got an incredible team and they do you know sort of tech and sort of strategy consulting for um, big corporates but then 
and then we have founders keepers um it's run by rick which is like exec recruitment that's inc- uh, that's pretty cool and then they have all these other things like they have poppy who kind of runs founders right and they do accelerate her and, like, and they all sits over there i'm pointing that your listeners can't see me pointing but it's over there um and and like it's an incredible group and that was all well and good so but when i emailed brent and sort of said fortunate for me he was literally got back within half an hour which was amazing because you know brent's brent right like and even and he came up and said why don't you come and speak to henry and literally the next day i was speaking to henry and henry outlined outlined this plan for founders factory right and it felt like the perfect i want to say resting home for failed entrepreneurs but like it felt it felt like the place that if you've had a career in tech and you've got kids and you're a little bit tired um but you've got a shitload of experience it's like the perfect place for you to come and to come and do what you need to do because the idea it was still innovative and and it is innovative mm. it it is doing something that i believe and is unique in the world so having a venture studio is not unique or an incubator whatever you want to get is not unique having an accelerator is not unique having a venture studio and an accelerator is not unique but what we do which is entirely unique and this is what some of the things that sort of henry was told me at the time was they we thought and again this is this is going to sound anathema to some of your listeners i guess we believe and actually we believe is we are showing to be true that there is a positive sum arrangement that you can create between three stakeholders one the early stage tech ecosystem that's obviously that's where we came from that's in our dna two the opportunities offered by big corporates yep. okay because your linear thought around that is that can't be done like you, you kind of default into dis or one disrupts the other and the third stakeholder obviously is, is the founders factory team and so we think that there is a positive sum arrangement where you can get those things working synergistically for the mutual benefit of all it brings all of the boats up right mm-hmm. that's the idea here okay and so what henry told me about this and he said look we're early we're still frankly at deck stage we're still sort of talking we're starting to talk to investors but da 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 and i literally just bang the desk i'm like Henry, I have to be working for this business. Like I think I've got a lot to offer here. And he's like, "Oh, yeah, I maybe I agree with you." And then he said, "But, you know, we won't be opening. We're still early, but we won't won't be opening the doors until September." So, I literally come out there and I like, call my wife, like Felicia is my wife. I'm like, "You telling me to email Brent was the single best thing you've ever told me to do." Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just spoke to Henry. He told me about this plan. I'm like, "It's fucking amazing. I absolutely have to do this." Um, she's like, oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And I'm like, and, and then, and then, like two days later, we're going on holiday to Cornwall with my outlaws, i.e., her parents and the boys. <laughs> and um, it was Friday evening. We we're having dinner with her parents. Um, God love them. And 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 at nine o'clock that evening, I get an email from Henry, and he's like, um, "So, David, you know, we were talking about blah blah blah. Like, we've we're trying to raise money, and you know, you said you're good at kind of doing deals." Well, we think that we've got this deal from this investor. We don't really know. It feels like it's kind of impossible to get. Would you mind coming? Like he said to me, "What is the cheapest you will come and work for us?" Okay, um, and can you start on Monday? So I, I, I say to my wife, "What is the cheapest that I can work?" And I said, "Can I start on Monday morning?" And she's like, "Yes, you." Yes, you're gonna get paid in hundreds of thousands. And I'm like, that is not cheap. So I literally went back to him, and I'm not scared to say this, right? Got back to him within ten minutes because this is the way you're supposed to operate, right? As a mm-hmm. startup scale-up person, yeah. I can do it for forty thousand pounds, right? And I will start on Monday. And he and he came back to me, and went, 
hmm, that seems reasonable. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, my view is, like, it's been a long time since I worked with Henry. This was a new project. My view is, go in, do a good job, yeah. do what needs to be done, and when they can afford to pay me, like, a half... I still get paid... On, we all get paid under market here, but that's because we align incentives. Yeah. Get paid under market. We're incentivized by our equity. That is how, what I be, how I believe it should be done. I'm kind of a bit neoliberal when it comes to this stuff. Align incentives, no rent-seeking. Um, I don't just say, I do. So I literally had to call everyone on that Monday morning. You know, I'm doing this consulting work. I like, I literally can't do it anymore. By half 10, I walked in and they handed me this deal that, that they wanted to do at Holtzbank, which felt entirely intractable. It was impossible because like, they had a, already had an incubator, which they want to close down. They wanted to take that off the balance sheet. They wanted to do A, B and C. And it was like impossible. And so Henry, George and I literally sat in a room for five days and by the end of the fifth day, it was Friday, we like repitched it to Holtzbrink because the Holtzbrink was the investor. And, and they went, yeah, we think that could work. Um, and so by the time we got to July, we closed their funding and then we closed Guardian like three months later. And then we closed L'Oreal and Aviva and then we closed CSC, EasyJet. Obviously, since then, we've done Standard Bank and then we're doing some pretty cool stuff, which to be announced. And, and when you say um, closed, just to clarify for anybody listening, the corporate contracts you have, the corporates mandate you to match them up. How does that work? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> this is my favorite question. Thanks. Um, <laughs> it's, my fa it's my favorite question because I think this goes back to this idea of when you see something kind of from the outside, you bring your whole biases to it. Like you think that it's something yeah. and then you continue to think that notwithstanding a large part of like the evidence that's presented to you. So remember we said we, want, we wanted to find the positive sum arrangement. Key to that is optimizing for talent. If you optimize for talent, you optimize, I think, you, you also optimize for return and you also optimize for strategic return. Let's just say financial return is obviously the, the cash that they're gonna, we, Founders Factory, plus our, we're not a fund, they invested in us in return for equity, okay? If the portfolio is a, is a success, the money comes back to us, we distribute it back either via dividends or whatever or whatever mechanic we do that. That's financial return. Strategic return is the our corporate investors want to invest in us because they want to get better at innovation. They want to they want to learn by doing because they want to have an additional arrow to their quiver in terms of where we have our CVC or we have our own innovation arm and like some of this stuff is just really hard to make work. Founders Factory offers this alternative. So so the investors, they investors in, invest in us. They don't go on the cap table of the portfolio like we do, right? Um, and we try and find the opportunities. And by the way, that people, so again, there's like, I think there's a massive confusion over what a corporate is. So people kind of assume that a corporate is, I, I don't know, just for the sake of argument, let's say, call it L'Oreal. Like, they assume L'Oreal is like this monolith when its executive says, move left, everyone moves left, and it says, move right, so right. L'Oreal isn't that. L'Oreal is actually, like, all of these things. Everything is, is a complex system, um, and therefore it has some intractable, which is no one's fault. This is, the, I think this is the important thing when it comes to understanding about these things at a systems level. Intractable problems that cause inertia. Nobody's fault. Nobody even knows the problem, so they, it's impossible to even understand the solution. So these people who are, by the way, are some of the brightest people you're ever likely to meet, like these guys in the innovation, gals in the innovation teams who work for these corporates, they're super, super bright people trying to get along, okay? And yet you go, oh, well, you know, this investor didn't do that, the corporate didn't do that. They're trying to think that any of this stuff is easy, like, I, in my opinion, just is incredibly naive. So what we do is we try and, well, like, we try and solve problems for them, but the key thing is we do that in a in very much a collaborative way, which to a large degree we lead, right? Because we we are the experts to a degree and 
we're trying to find the opportunity, like all the opportunities. There, there is, without trying to be, and I'm, I'm pretty sure any of our investors won't mind me saying this, it's not like we work to their mandate. It's, it's not like the Boston Consultant Group's like digital ventures team, where they're given a brief. It's like, we come from the ecosystem. We know, we believe we know how to optimize for talent. Therefore, let us do what we do, but we will do it in collaboration where there is a positive sum arrangement for everybody. And that's how you're going to get this strategic return. And our investors, who, by the way, are a relatively small set of all corporates we've ever spoken to. So it's not like all corporates are born into this idea. These are just the ones, I think, in my opinion, who are just lateral thinking, thinking enough to believe that this is going to be successful. And frankly, it has been successful or it is being successful. Mm. How many companies have, have come through? So we're, we're, the portfolio is 97. 97. But of course, again, this is, it's not like we were able to bring a cohort in of like 25 on day one because we got the first check from Holdspring and it took us another 20 months to get all the checks in from the first six investors. Mm -hmm. So obviously we couldn't be operating at scale and making all these investments from day one. So really we've only been operating at scale, in inverted commas, at scale since November 2016. But what we do here is our number one, and we're very proud of this, our number one cost is our wage bill. Sounds weird, but this is how we differentiate ourselves from other accelerators and other, well, particularly other accelerators. By the way, they've got their own model. They're, they're welcome to, we haven't, I, like, I'm not gonna sit here and say that's right, that's right, that's right. They, they can all be right, mm. okay? We just work in a different way and like all power to them, all power to us. But here's what I think. Because we have raised much more cash onto our balance sheet and the number one cost is our wages, and again, this is gonna sound weird, we can do things that do not scale. What do I mean by that? If you've got a classic accelerator with a thin operating team, and a sidecar fund, mm -hmm. okay, that invests directly into the underlying portfolio. They have to do things that scale because they don't have the resource at the operating level to run structured programs. So they, they're like, week one, bring in a cohort to 25, week one, like deep dive on product, week two, like deep down on fundraising, week three, mentor man is like end of program, demo day. Everything that scales because they have to scale. Now we're completely the opposite, which is, because we have got an operating team, not a services team, we're not, they're not lawyers and they're not accountants, they're not HR, it's an operating team, which is different. Operators are different from kind of managed like services. Once we're like, come in, there's no week one, week two, week two. It's literally, let's see how we can, what we need to do in order to you to be accelerated with a small A, not accelerated with a capital A, mm. like in the common garden use of the word accelerator. How can we work together for mutual success, right? So it's more bespoke. Much more bespoke, it's entirely bespoke. You can only be bespoke if you do things that do not scale, mm. okay? So in the end, funny enough, Ollie, I'm gonna get the answer to your question. Your first question is what makes me think that I can give a, an interesting perspective on raising money for early stage startups? Um, the, fun, the irony is we're gonna go full circle, I'm gonna answer that question pretty shortly. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah, so, so, so in doing things that don't scale, obviously that means that we can just do things that other accelerators can't. Obviously, in terms of they, the way they, they are taking a much broader portfolio approach, like if they invest in 25 and then 25 and 25, but they have kind of little input, it's much more like, oh, we're going to get the, the industry beta return if like we invest enough. Whereas we're like, let's take much smaller. We only do five per year in the accelerator, five per year per sector, mm. which means in any sector that can be as few as two. Right. So many more of us, much fewer of them, which means that we have to operate. So our hands get very dirty. We live and breathe 
the experience of our startups okay it's like it's like being part of their operating team obviously there is a proviso there is that still the idea is that we don't we won't do it for you because you won't learn that way it's much more we'll show you how to fish not do this fishing for you but frankly in the reality of the real world sometimes in order just to do what we need to do sometimes we just go ahead and do it mm -hmm. so what does that mean obviously we've now got a portfolio of 97 19 of which by the way have been span out with a venture studio, um, all of which that have got beyond six months have all got invested. And then still, there are still some that haven't got through the six months, which is why I'm saying they haven't been, but they, obviously they, 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 they will. But my point being is we have to get really good at understanding the dynamic of raising for early stage venture back. So it's a venture asset class, by the way, guys. So I don't know, like not all your audience is angel investment uh, angels, but obviously there are some classes which aren't venture and they've kind of diff different ways of thinking about the investment into them. But we deal with venture back startups. Anyone who wants to go on the venture route, obviously that's got a particular, comes with a particular things. They have to be typically in technology, they typically at scales. They want to have a lot of money invested in them to go very, very big. But there's also a big failure rate too, right? So, so we just have to get really good, and we have gotten really good in my opinion, in understanding that dy this dynamic from the sales side. Because we have done it for real, like just within Founders Factory over the last four years, mm. 97 times, mm. okay? Like, I don't know, and despite all the, all the startups that you've raised for, yeah. obviously um, with Angel Investment Network, there's a lot of, I guess it's reach outs and, but this is like- It's, this, it's different, it's, it's different. We're, we're matchmaking. You're matchmaking. So we're not having to, to close out the deal on behalf of the yeah. startup that still sits with them, which you're- But this is a full stack process, yeah. right? The full stack process. Like if you think about, it doesn't start with the deck. What it starts with is helping them understand well, what does the end look like, yeah. right? And sometimes the question I run if I don't think that the startups there already, some, most of them are because it's a great portfolio. But like, I'll say to them, tell me what your business looks like the day before you sell this to Amazon or Google or you IPO for a billion dollars. What does it look like the day before that happens? Five years time, what is it? What's the product? Like, who's it serving? Like, what is it? Because once they get there, that's your like you say, that's your north star. Like whenever you are pitching your business, you have to have this in your mind at all times, and everything that you say has to back into this north star, even if it's even if it's implicit, it's just sitting in the back of your mind. So as long as you've got that in your head, everything else is going to start to fall into place. So this is your long-term strategy and the tactics that you're going to get to get there. So that's where it starts, right? And once we've got that clarified, obviously that manifests in, in the way that it looks in their deck, in their yeah. investment materials, their financial model can, rolls into that. And that's kind of like the start of the process. Yeah. So, so you were talking earlier about how um, it's easy in retrospect to draw up a really nice coherent story for what happened. Mm. So in effect, what you're asking to do is to imagine what their ideal future looks like and then reverse engineer and yeah. create a narrative from that yeah. that, that they can then build everything, including their deck, mm. their pitch story around, yeah. if I've understood correctly. You are. Yeah. And, and, and are you saying, yeah, but David, you've just contradicted yourself. No, 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 no not at all. <laughs> no, you've learned from your lessons. It, well, we do this for our podcast. We set a golden objective that we loosely try and keep to yeah if we fall off plan because there's two of us hosting we need to get back into th the mission oh no no no. here's the thing guys okay let's not conflate reality with pitching to get money mm -hmm. okay the reality is a a drunkard's walk it's like a stochastic system or a brownian motion or whatever it is right yeah and again 
I could sit here and, and I could go, you look at my background and it feels like it's an in- inevitable journey to get to here. It's nothing of the fucking sort. Mm-hmm. It is literally, it is worse than a drunkard's. <laughs> it is worse than a drunkard's walk in order to get here. It's almost entirely random, yeah. right? Yeah. To end up with, the, like, did I think in like the late 80s, early 90s when I was just starting to go to university to an economics degree, I'm going to end up like running a venture studio and accelerator. Like, didn't even exist, right? Of course not. And yet here I am. So I can, and here's, here's my point. It's like, you, you don't want to take the, what is a lagging indicator, which is something which you are, and think you can sort of disambiguate to understand what was the causal reason for that. It's supremely complex. However, when it comes to, and to your point, Ed, about like you fall off, you get back on. Actually, what you should be doing is you should, the way this really works is this idea of kind of the lean methodology, which is you fight and win and lose. Mm-hmm. As long as you lose and you learn, local battles the world is too supremely complex for anything that sits at a meta level Mm. like that's why socialism like here i go like that is why that's why (laughs) socialism looks brilliant for anyone that wants to signal virtue but it just doesn't work okay it's the same with anything that's a planned economy it looks brilliant like for anyone that wants to signal virtue it just doesn't work because you can't create top down a structure that is gonna that that understands the complexity of the way that the world works, and you're going to know this because of classics. Um, well, you might know this. Test him, like uh, you did with yeah, me. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, obviously, there was, as we know, the Silk Road. But obviously, there's a kind of misnomer around the Silk Road, right? Which is, it was a road. Well, of course, it wasn't. It was a, it was a, it was a complex system. It was like a, it had a small world topology, the kind of the classic, to put graph, you know, the kind of the graph theory, and it was incredibly resilient. Right, it was incredibly resilient, and it lasted a long time. And it was, and no one created it top down. No one sort of said, "This is the thing that we're going to create." It was all bottoms up, and it was all based on trade, mm. free trade, getting the incentives in the right way. Incredibly resilient, didn't break for years and years and years. It's probably still not broken. But of course, what happens is that people that come in top down try and impose, I don't know, communism or whatever, like, or even you know, structures that kind of fit top, top down. They, are, it's gonna that breaks quickly because they can't anticipate the complexity of what this thing is. So you just deal with it bottoms up, which means fight and win local battles. So you're the sum parts of those continuous local battles, but you at least have some destination in mind. But at the same time, you prepare for so, randomness so so, so so nearly right so, so are you the sum okay great i love you i love the fact that you brought that up are you the sum of the parts i guess the best thought experiment to think about this right are we wait, like do we have time or does this yes yeah. it's your time it's your time um let's just say you have a billion ants right you have a billion ants and you line them all up and in between each one of these ants you have a little little walls let's call them walls right trumpian walls okay <laughs> so the ants can they have free reign but they can never the twain can meet okay now you've got a billion ants now ask yourself the question like how much value do you think that that has got probably almost nothing you've probably got the sum of a billion ants and whatever that is that they contribute now you remove those the walls and suddenly you have the billion ants, they start communicating with each other, and you have what top down looks like a beautiful animal. Actually, it can optimize things like the quickest way for, to get food, mm-hmm. how to get over uh, uh, streams. So my point being is people, when people are too reductive about the way things work is they think in terms of, well, here's the one unit, um, and and if I aggregate, if I get the, if I get the sum of the units, then I've got the sum. But it, but of course it's not. They forget of the power of the information transfer between the individual parts yep. that creates something which is could be almost infinite, right? Yeah. It is it is at least 
like a million X at least, because this is virtually valueless, like a, like a, like a super performing ants nest is, has got huge value. So that's how I think about the world is like, uh, that's why I don't agree when people get, get too reductive about almost everything. Mm -hmm. like they, and that applies to almost everything that is beyond kind of the first dimension. The, these are higher dimensions, many orders. It is connected parts. Yeah. Well, with the, with the ant sort of example, you're saying that it's a billion entities basically having to cater to the lowest common denominator because they're not, while the walls are up, they're not able to communicate with each other. So uh, what what are the key learnings for startups coming through the Founders Factory process that you're really helping them optimize? Again, this is a good, this is a good a question for me because over the... So we've been doing this, like I say, at scale now, four years. Um, over the Christmas and New Year period when people were away, like one of the things that we've been doing is um, redoing our playbooks, right? Like um, like our the materials that we have kind of in-house, if you like, the training materials, if you like, in terms of our learning. So so this is quite fresh in my mind. So I have created what I call the, the, the sort of no bullshit guide to early stage fundraising for this particular type of Asset. So, and funnily enough, I think one of the ones is understand how VC investors think about you, right? So VC investors, to a large degree, they're, again, super smart people, and they think along the same lines as this. Of course, they understand that, that there is a huge failure rate, um, that they have to take a portfolio approach. And funnily enough, in terms of their secondary, and I, I, if you guys are creating a secondary fund, that's up to you, but like, but here's my point, it, it like, you have like this like if you're investing in this asset class you've got a white knuckle it on your secondary because you've got a if you're going to if you're going to get any kind of sensible return and by the way the industry return here is around about 3x over over 10 years mm -hmm. but the point being that's inc the variance is huge so the industry the mean is 3x gross right but the variance is huge because, of course, over here, you've got the Googles and the Apples. Yeah. And over here, you've got the, the, the zillions that have failed. Well, it's not billions. It's, it's thousands. OK. So once you get to the fact that the, the, the mean is 3x, your job as, a, as an investor is to get your median return as close as you can to the mean. You're never going to get there unless you invest in everything. So, like, how many investments should you have been making in order to be give yourself an above 50 percent probability that, that you're going to get you're going to get the median is, is close to the mean. Right. So. Um, and actually, that's one of the blog posts that I sent you. That was that I did like seven or eight years ago, um, which um, actually I've refined a lot of those models. So it's, it's quite old. Um, that is the way that venture investors think about it. So when it comes to the startups, we're like, guys, these are the, the venture investors think about this in terms of you. So let's just say that let's just simple maths. Let's just say that you are you want to get a million pounds of that someone who's got a hundred million pound fund and they're going to have 10 percent right in you okay now they have to believe that you can return their fund now now if they've got 10 percent in you like maybe they've they've been able to do all their follow-ons and this that and the other so they they haven't been diluted beyond the 10 percent again this is very mythical but 10 percent of 100 million is a billion so they've got to believe that you can get to a billion that you could get there not that you will but you could which means that you've got to believe that too so i we kind of start with that um which is don't think, oh, if I can sell them, I can flip this to Google for 75 million. That's going to be at all interesting to VCs because it's really not. Mm -hmm. um, because they've got, every single one of them has got to believe that you can, be, you can be massive. So that's the first thing that we do. But the other thing we do, which is, by the way, this, I won't give away all my house secrets here because if you want to get the house secrets, come and join the Founders Factory Accelerator Ring, you better. But the, but the other one that we do that I say a lot 
And this goes back to sort of the Lindy effect, which is, I don't know if you guys know the Lindy effect, because the Lindy effect is the longer you hang around, like you see me around for a year, the chances are you're going to be around for another year, right? Sounds weird, but that's the Lindy effect. It comes from Lindy's Cheesecakes in New York, and it's all about kind of, like it's, it's like it's a book. If you, if the book's been around for a year, chances are it's going to be around for another year. If it's, if it's around for two years, chances are it's going to be around for four years. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, because it starts to generate its own momentum and its own reputation, and actually you can kind of extrapolate this out to almost anything kind of art, like why is the Mona Lisa so good? Well, is the Mona Lisa so good? It's because everyone's been, because it generated that kind of momentum, okay? So the point being, I'm like, how do you, how do you optimize for the Lindy effect when you're a startup. And again, this is going to sound counter to a lot of the stuff that you're typically going to hear on the podcasts, particularly those that are interviewing kind of series A tier one VCs, where they give a whole kind of bunch of things that they that the that, that advice, which it comes from massive ivory tile survivorship bias. I'm like, hmm, that might be interesting to you, but let me tell you what it's like when you're trying to raise money for 97 startups. Okay. We say optimize for cash in the bank. Because I have seen startups optimize for the wrong things. Oh, I'm not going to take that money from blah, blah, because they've got X as an LP in the fund, okay? Mm. I'm not going to do that. Or not going to take that because I think that in the end, some at some weird point in the future, I'm going to lose too much control and I'm going to be too diluted. Like, I have seen this time and time again across my 97. Not once, not once have I ever seen that startup that said no to money, mm. right, at some point, not regret it? Not once. On, on the, excuse me, on the, on the inverse, I have never, ever seen a startup be pissed off by putting money in the bank. Okay? Never. Right. I've never seen them gutted by the fact that they put someone's cash and they've stuck it in the bank. I'm like... Despite what you've read on the blogs, despite what you listen in the podcast, you absolutely optimize for cash in the bank. It doesn't mean it's the be all and end all. It's just the number one priority because because if you're going to be worried about having control at some distant point in the future, I'm like, don't worry about that today because you're not going to have a business to be worrying about it in the future. And let me tell you something else. If you in, I don't know, two years time are running a business that's doing 300 grand, 300 grand MRR mm-hmm. and like benchmarks interested like in the States or whatever, right? So to do your Series A, Series B, whatever it is, and they look at the cap table and I don't think you're, you're sufficiently well incentivized, they're going to fucking look after you. If you are the person that is delivering the value for that investor going forward, mm-hmm. they're going to fucking look after you. They're not going to look at the cap table and go, oh, we've got to make sure Founders Factory's looked after. We've got to make sure this angel investors look after you. I'm like, you're thinking this in a wrong-headed way. And this goes back to the idea of thinking top-down versus bottoms-up, okay? It's like... Go- two, two things here. So one, um, do you play your part in pro- stopping companies getting bad deal terms? Because let's say some people just get terrible terms with the 97. Who are these people? You're, you're 97. Who are these people? Who are these people with these bad terms? So let me tell you something okay. else. So, the, so in the real world, the vast majority, there was one exception I'll talk about in a minute. In the real world, the vast majority of deals in our world, right, are almost exactly the same. Agreed. Right? There is some variability this way, the ranges are the same. Yeah. Right, because of course it all kind of it all kind of in this bottoms up way. It no one decides it top down. It all works it out like it's the market. Right, mm-hmm. it calibrates itself into these ranges. Right, it like you know you know well, SEIS you, is, the, is very, becoming so standardized it's unreal. But but, but what I mean is is the ter- like how much you give away. Like there's some heuristic around fifteen to twenty percent. There's some heuristic for like like per dilute. You know like what I mean is by that is. 
you know, there are there are ranges and heuristics that people just like default into because it's too complicated to work out. Oh, should I should should I be valuing this company at some function of future revenue when it's just a, a, a model? It's just a model, right? Mm-hmm. So in the end, the market starts to detect the, the, the like getting the ranges and the terms. Everyone knows broadly what they are. So generally, like nine and again out of my ninety seven, like I have never seen a bad deal, right? I've seen some variation around the mean. I've never seen a bad deal. There was one occasion where I did see a bad deal. It wasn't a bad deal. I did what a different deal where this guy, they were offered like a million and a half or something. And the guy wanted like 51%. You know, it was more like a private equity type. And the founder was like, oh, you know, I can't do this. You know what I said to him? I'm like, take the fucking money and put the fucking money in the bank, right? Now, that was specific advice for him. I wouldn't say that to everybody. Do you know why? Six months later, he's out of business. Six months later, he's out of business. He he negotiated too hard. And like, of course, he's able to. I'm not saying don't negotiate. I'm like, get it under, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, in the end, you've got to fucking do this deal. Because mm-hmm. we've been trying to raise for you for X number of months. Product just isn't there. Like the opportunity isn't there. If you want this to be a success, you've got to get this money in the bank. Optimize cash in the bank. It doesn't mean just do any deal, but, but that's your number one priority. He didn't do it. He went out of business. Okay. So and maybe, maybe like in the big holistic scheme of things, he didn't want to be invested in a business where someone else had like, you know, some large proportion. Maybe, maybe that was, that's, that's fine. Like, and I've never been fucking wrong. I mean, you're kidding. I've never been wrong in any of the advice that I've ever given, but the founders have been wrong when they haven't done what I've said. And it sounds, it sounds like But that arrogant. comes back to the story I was saying about true. an entrepreneur will look forward from their own perspective. So their relative position is I'm starting a company, I'm the founder, I'm going on this journey. You've seen it 97 times specifically in Founders Factory, I've seen it hundreds of times. So at a fundraising level, we have the data, the oversight to start spotting the errors that I think are very difficult to 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 see. And then also you'll, you then have to be able to take sound advice based on yeah. somebody who, who's been through the mail. And I do say this, and I frequently say this to the guys, you want to raise your pre-revenue, pre-product. All right, so you're two super brainy guys from with like a PhD in AI, this is mythical, by the way, but like, it's like they come in and go, yeah, but we're going to raise two and a half million, like your pre-product, pre-revenue. I'm like, do you know what? And I never say, no, you're fucking not. I'll say, you could do that, but that will put you two standard deviations away from the mean and you will, you're likely not like, I'm like, you're a smart guy. You've got a PhD, you've like a PhD in AI from some crazy university. I'm like, you understand this stuff. The market is saying, and by the way, the market is not just, you can't think about yourself in a discrete sense. You have to think about yourself in the terms of the matrix of everybody else that is trying to be raising money that, you know, they're entrepreneur first guys. Like, like the market is saying you, you will on average raise X amount at Y valuation. I'm like, you could do it. And if you want to go away and, and prove me wrong, please prove me wrong. But I'm telling you that if I was running this business, I would be raising, you know, I'd be getting my SEIS round done for fuck's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'd yeah. be like getting the cash in the bank, doing whatever I need to do to get to the next stage to, to actually have a business which on average would be able to raise the two and a half million quid. And also the, the business now reflects the value of the cash spent in the business. So if you raise um, 150K SEIS, let's say some people want to do 300K bridge um, SEIS and EIS, get the 150K SEIS first, put it to use, then start raising the EIS, which you could do at a higher valuation. Because that's the thing. People say, I'd like to raise 1 million, 2 million, because it's more efficient this way. I'll get the, the money in, the money's in the bank. It could take you 12 to 15 months to raise that amount of money. Whereas the, you know, we've seen SEIS rounds done in, in literally five days, yeah. but some, you know, the average is about three to three to four weeks. So you yeah. can get on and run your business. The story improves rather than 
we raised a third of the money we were looking for. And actually, actually, that does remind me of another one of these kind of the, uh, these guides that I've got in this guideline thing I was telling you about. It's too exactly to that point, actually. So I'm a massive fanboy. You've probably got this already. I'm a massive fanboy of Nassim Taleb. So his most recent was something called Skin in the Game. What he basically says there, in, in like, unless. He says, don't tell me what you think, just show me what's in your portfolio. In other words, like, talk is cheap. We, I get this a lot with my portfolio companies that, for example, they pitch to a VC um, and the VC will go, oh, we, we see that you're raising uh, 500,000. Like, we think you need one and a half million pounds. So the founder comes back to me and says, David, you told me that I need to be raising 500,000 pounds. Like, like, this VC says I'm going to be one and a half million pounds. I'm like, okay. I'm like, did they then write you a check? And they're like, Oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, what did they say? They said, uh, did you say, oh, great, I'll take it. Give me the one and a half million. They were like, oh, no, 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 like you're too early for us. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute. They're saying you need to raise one and a half million, but then they're saying too early. I'm like, unless they are writing you a check, it doesn't matter what they are saying. The point being is, of course, everyone that could raise 18 fucking months worth of money would do it if they could. It's like, don't raise what you think you need, raise what you can. Because it's dictated to a, to a large degree about by the market. And then if you have to retrofit a fucking compelling story that goes into that, then that is what we do. That is what's known as realpolitik. That is like living with being pragmatic and not buying into what is what is kind of a top-down, here's what you should be doing, that has bears no relation to reality. And again, like, where's my unique perspective? This comes from, like, doing it for real over and over again and learning from those scars. And, and in the meantime, you're looking around. You are. You made a very good point that other people are taking the available pool of, of money off the table. So while you're bungling, we, and we see it because we broker for 100 companies a year, is that our investors will look at two or three companies and the one that's most proactive and, and vaguely the most interesting to them will get the check. And the other one that goes is stalling the discussions then misses out on 100K. So it's not that you you don't get your money, it's just other people are taking it off the table, especially yeah. you know this time of year where it's tax break time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This goes to the point. You have to think about where you are in the context of the matrix, right? The other people in this ensemble. It's not just about you. It's about you and the other opportunities that are available to these investors. Yes. And, and, and are you saying that that's a science or is that an art? It's an art. It's, an it's art. all an art. Anyone yeah. who thinks there's anything other is art smoking. They yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no science. There's no. There is, but there is some formula in. in I think. Fundraising. That I think there are guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> but there, again, this goes my my point. There's the mean of which no one. There's the average person. You know, come across some of these ideas. Like there's the average person, but no one is the average person. Of course, there's like variances around them. So I have the guidelines, but my number one is optimize for getting cash in the bank. Get the fucking cash in the bank. Because if you're around for a year, the chances are you're going to be around for another year. If you're around for two years, chances are you're around four years. And if you're around four years, like, you've got a fucking good business. Mm. Would you suggest that within getting cash in the bank, they have a plan for how that cash can be used? Because um, the danger of a big round is some people stall business activity, still looking for this new pool of cash. And if you get 150, you're looking for 250. Um, I think if the entrepreneur immediately started focusing on executing on the business and said, look, no, we don't have 250, but we're going to put that into the business. We're going to show growth. The next 100 will subsequently become easier to acquire. Whereas I see too many people kind of put the, the business function slightly on the back burner while still grinding away at trying yeah. to get cash. But again, again, in my opinion, that's to a small degree conflating your sales pitch and the reality, okay? Mm -hmm. Or what is platonically ideal and the reality of this shit. It is 
different for absolutely everybody and everyone is just trying their fucking hardest to make it work yeah the point there are no rules because once you define the rules there are exceptions to every single rule all the time right Do you know what i mean so 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 typically what's happening is this is the founder is doing the best that they get damn well can can yeah and, and i think this also goes back to another point you make of you talent you don't know who you're going to get on that journey so they raise money and often the money is to to get staff and scale the team um, and that's another variable that's out of your control unless you can start to line people up before not even ed so like it won't surprise you to hear i've got strong views on this one as well right yep. we had a we had a, a guy that he had a very strong view on the way that you should recruit he used to have this idea that it was you have to hire this cliche which may or may not be true may or may not work which is like hire slow fire fast right so he would bring in these candidates and this poor fn candidate or not just the one that was successful but like 10 would have to literally see seven or eight employees before they would be offered the job and here's my thing you can have 10 interviews and until you have actually gotten in and you have worked with someone for a period of time and i don't even mean three months it could be six it could be 12 months you have no idea of their capabilities despite how many interviews that you have no idea and you can be deceived by degrees you can be deceived by like sats tests you can be deceived by any of the things that you want to be doing but particularly when it comes to startups it's like lean methodology don't make any assumptions get in test get in test mm -hmm. so my view is by the way this is david's rule this is not founders factory's rule by the way like this is my rule which is i work extremely quickly i get people in and then we work to, like if i like if they, if they think they're base smart i will work with them to to achieve the successes that we need. What I won't do is wait a huge amount of time interviewing tens of people and putting through tens of interviews. For the return that you get, it's a big fat wasted time. It might not be the same for lawyers or accountants or bankers, or whatever. I'm talking about this particular world. Mm. Yeah. David, you've got a meeting. We've got to I let have. you go, it's really sad. No, I don't want to go. So that's fine, no. we can keep going. I'll just tell Nick to do my, my three o'clock, yeah. Yes, I'm just awesome. gonna, let me Let me just text, text Nick. To... So I'd like to talk for, for a bit, if we can, about um, the act of, of pitching for entrepreneurs and, and are there, I mean, we seem pretty tied into the fact that it's it's an, it's an art form now, but are there still um, pillars of guidance that you, you tend to offer here? So I guess, um, following some uh, similar themes, so one of the things that, again, I guess we are cautious of within Founders Factory, and I guess this reflects our brand, which is we try not to dictate too much about the things that you should be doing because or, or creating too many rigid rules um, because in the end those rules will break and, and therefore will break in all circumstances because there's no there's no average person um, and therefore and therefore not entirely valueless but to a degree less valuable than you think so here's a fun story about me I for a short period of time kicked off by a session that I had with my a class that I had with my wife did stand up did you? And I did that. I, I guess I did that a because like my wife and I just decided. I think this this was probably it definitely was. It was pre kids, so we decided we, like it was one of those things. Oh, let's do something cool together. And like I'm like I don't know. Let's do one of these comedy courses. So we because <laughs> just you know I think we did it drunk. But anyway, um, so we so we yes yeah, so we did it, so we did this thing. And actually she was I think she was actually genuinely funnier than me. But <laughs> I, I, like it's very I think, supportive. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but so at the end of these course you have to do this gig. So we both did this gig and. 
like the funny thing is like I did this gig and people laughed right so he was like fucking hell it's like a drug okay I'm like oh let's do this so I thought like here's something which I think it's good for confidence and and I know this sounds strange but actually I um I don't I'm not mega confident um when it comes to public speaking and various different things and I thought it would be good for my confidence to literally throw myself in the deepest possible end so I did it I did it for about 18 months and I wouldn't say I was 18 months yeah I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I was particularly Good. Where did you gig? I thought it was okay. Did you do, any, did you do a comedy store? So, <laughs> um, so here's the thing. There's this whole weird kind of underworld yeah, of, of, of people that want to be comedians. And typically, so you do these open mics or a little bit more upper market from the open mics where you have comedy things and you're, and you're like given a slot. It's like the whole kind of hierarchies and there's like five minute comics and there's the 10 minute comics and then there's the 20 minute. If you get to kind of 20 minutes and you do a set and you can get paid for it, it's like you're like the golden children or whatever. Like And then and it, it's, it's, a, it's actually a very supportive group. And typically when you do these comedy nights, your audience are just other comics, right? Like, um, so they're, they're also to a degree sort of empathetic to what you're doing. I mean, there are also some kind of randoms in there. If you get a random to laugh, it's like, this is the best feeling ever. So yeah, but one of the things I noticed about that, so one of the things, this is eventually going to answer your question. So one of the things that I noticed about that was you can make a, like a whole bunch of assumptions about what people are going to find funny. You say a whole bunch of things and suddenly people start laughing in areas you didn't think they were going to be laughing. And the only way that you get really good, and by the way, even the top comics do this, which is why, why like, kind of pre-Edinburgh and this, that, and the other, you, or pre-going on a big show, you can catch, you can see very big comics just doing, like, small pubs when they're testing it. Like, the only way they can really know whether something works or not is just to literally do it. And this actually goes to some of the ideas that people like Anders Ericsson, is it Pete? I think the, the book is Peak, but he, he was the guy that uh, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about when he was like, if you want to be an expert of anything, you've got to be doing it um, for 10,000 hours, which of course is, which Malcolm Gladwell has been quoted out of context and then people blame Malcolm Gladwell for that. But of course, he, you know, he, he put it in context as people choose to read it out of context. And of course, the context wasn't that you have to do things at 10,000 hours. Of course, it's a spectrum, but it's all about this. You do things, somebody who you trust is watching, they kind of course correct you practice the thing that you but the core thing here is you do it and you do it a lot learning from what you're doing and course correcting at all time but you do it a lot and not to make too many assumptions ahead of time but allow basically for it to build up bottoms up and again this is this is hitting a whole bunch of themes but I, the reason why i think it hits a whole bunch of things because i think a lot of this stuff totally generalizes um so this is the same idea that we've i've got with founders factory like, like we don't have formal pitch class we don't even send out here's what your deck needs to look problem solution da 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 okay we don't really have investor days or demo days because again we don't have this big end of program demo day but we definitely do have portfolio showcase days there's a difference there because demo day tends to be that cohort where showcase can be anyone in output of that 97 in the portfolio and sometimes it's like they're showcasing how they've how the, their journey from where they've been to and they can they can showcase more than once right but we definitely do have a process by which we help them get better at, at showcasing their wares but you know what we do we're like it's a three-minute pitch and like it's gonna have to come with a deck here's some examples by the way here's some heuristics um, but go away and what we're going to do is you're just going to do it and we're going to take it from there. And it, all of it is 100% organic. And the rule is you just need, just need to practice, 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 ideally with people in the room. And that is how you master anything. Obviously, you're like, well, Jesus Christ, David, like you run this accelerator. Like, is that the best advice that you've got? I'm like, there is beauty in parsimony. Like, just because it's simple. By the way, it's simple to say, it's hard to execute because where do you get the time, this, that, and the other, daddy, daddy, damn, like, but 
I think there is something beautiful in the simplicity of it. And then, like, if you try and overcomplicate these things, in the end, people that overcomplicate, I think, is because their incentives are in the wrong, like, in the wrong place. They get paid to overcomplicate. Okay. I also say this. This kind of I have one other kind of uh, guideline, which is when it comes to your deck. Well, it's just got to look fucking amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because despite everything that you've ever heard about, it doesn't matter. It's all about your business, particularly when it comes to the early stage. Humans are humans. Okay. And like we take all sorts of things. We make a judgment about you in almost no time, and we bring our own biases to bear. This whole idea, this cliche of like a picture speaks a thousand words. That's the same thing that's happening here. We run this process within Founders Factory, which is we have, funnily enough, you had Will from Entail here. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm sure if Will was here, he can tell you the before and after story when, and like, bear in mind, like, he's a super experienced guy. Like, he's mm. fucking incredible. Like, he built businesses, he sold businesses, very talented, love him to bits. And he comes in and he, like, he runs through his, his investor deck and it's like a bunch of bullet points and a bunch of texts and a bunch uh. of things. And like, like, all right, like, and he goes, David, what do you think? And I literally just went, yes, will that shit? Hmm. Okay. Oh, I definitely got the treatment there. <laughs> yeah, I, it was. It actually ended up looking quite good. Uh, it looks brilliant. Yeah, it looked really good, and it, and it touched on all the exciting points of their right. their particular story. Because our biggest anxiety of working with Founders Factory is if every single week we come out with, hey, we've got a business. It's backed by Founders Factory. It's working with L'Oreal, Aviva, EasyJet. The story will become very repetitious. So it's always good for it to be able to cut a new angle in its yeah. own right. Um, and I felt that the Intel one completely did that. It was but, brilliant. But 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 he, but he, but here's why Will was so good, right? A he didn't take it personally, okay? And like he was like he literally said, "Have you got anything else to say?" I'm like, "No." I'm like, "No." I said, "Actually, your content is good." And actually, he said some pretty cool things about new rights classes and this, that, and the other. I'm like, "Your content is good, but your deck looks shit." He said, "Have you got any more guidelines?" I'm like, "Tell, tell you what I'm going to do. I've got my this. My one other rule is this: We are in the tech business, okay? Right? We are selling." technology products because they are tech-based internet-based whatever you want to call it they can scale i'm like tell your story using your tech product so if you've got a feature i want to see the fe- not a bullet point about the feature show me the fucking feature or oh, it's it i'm like just do it go away come back and sh-. literally goes away comes back the next day and he produce produces more or less like 80 percent of the thing that it ended up to be and that's it i'm like on your pitch just practice 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 i'm like on your deck just make it look fucking amazing by taking some heuristics from, I can send you the after decks that we've got here and some before, so by the way, some don't need my help, and tell your story with product. Do you remember Lucky Trip? How good was their deck? Dude, exactly right. We'll end tell it, but it was great from the get-go. It was brilliant, their story was brilliant. These guys, like, do you know what I said? Some guys don't need my help, those guys do not need my help. Funnily enough, we've got a guy who worked for Fleo, now works for Lucky Trip. For Fleo, also one of our portfolio companies. But when they came in, they had the Fleo deck, I'm like, Guys, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna give it to you, the Lucky lucky Trip deck, because it's confidential. I'm gonna show you it quickly. I'm like, it was like, product, 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 product. I'm like, can you see the difference? They were like, oh my God. I'm like, that is how good your deck needs to look. And the reason why it needs to look that good is because this is your competition. You have to think about, going back to the previous theme, you have to think about what you are doing in the matrix of everything else that's going on. And if this is the, the best in class, you have to get at least best in class or you're dead. And some people think, oh, this is simple mind. Like I say, it's, it's simple minded. Like it doesn't matter. Like if the, why Combinate have this thing is like, oh, it's not, we don't give pitch classes because your business just speaks for itself and da da da. I'm like, if you're at the Y Combinator level and you've got your 150 grand MRR, then you might be right. But if you are the early, if you are dealing where I'm dealing, which is kind of the pre-seed to seed, it's nearly all fucking storytelling. If you can tell your story using your tech product, making it look beautiful, like you are 50% there. Well, and we say to people, you're not getting investment off the back of a pitch deck. Rarely, there's a great 
sort of thing to band around that somebody just writes you a check going on the spot. You're buying time. And so we track the average deck read to three minutes, 30 yeah, seconds on Doxen. If a big image comes in, somebody stops scrolling. They'll read it for another 10 seconds and they start to speed up again. The team comes up, they slow down, financials slow down. It's like you, you're just trying to get them to take the next action, which could be to have a five-minute call with you. Then you can get to work on the next part of the, the procedure of getting the fundraising. But it's like, it's like what you wrote somewhere. Um, it's, it's the first impression and like the investor will flick through and they'll decide in that instant whether they want to invest. And then they'll spend the rest of the time looking for the documents, giving themselves, trying to find a reason for them not to invest. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's all about confirmation bias. So this is what I mean about the, 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 like this idea that your grand or your mother always used to say, like, like first impressions. Like first impressions, obviously we come with our own biases and that triangulates with the first impression. Do you, have you guys come across Tversky and Kahneman's thing? Uh, Kahneman, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Tversky was his, so they all come with kind of this like, this system which is the, the kind of the fast system, the associative system. So you bring you bring your own biases and then you triangulate it with the bias that's in front of you, which is kind of your sense bias and which gives you that, which is the first impression. And then after that, to a large degree, unless you literally ring through the kind of the, the Charlie Mungers like fifteen mental models, they are looking for the things that confirm their bias. And I and this is the way that I think about this, right? Let's just work with the psychology instead of trying to battle the psychology or try and say the psychology isn't something that it is. Yeah. I'm like, let's just fucking work with it and leverage it. Yeah, well they're humans, aren't they? They're investors, but they're humans. Yeah. I use a, an analogy which is it's like a hotel. If you go into the lobby of a hotel, the lobby of the hotel sets your expectations for your experience. You go in and it's beautiful and it's marble floor. You may not like marble floor, but you're at least impressed. And then often you go to the rooms which are completely identical to each other and, and often not that impressive for the, the amount you're paying. But if the hotel lobby was awful, then you're gonna go into the rest of the hotel thinking they don't care about it. You know what, my room looks messy, blah, blah, blah. But you, you have control over the first expectation somebody has of your business based on your pitch deck. And you should make that as good as possible. What we're trying to look at doing as a next, um, vehicle is trying to understand the specifics of the investor because we can see investors at scale what we want to understand is what's important to each investor in the deck so somebody may be more aligned with the importance of the financials and we're trying to see if we can engineer fit between the investors their track record what they're looking at and how we can better serve up the information for them i mean i mean obviously that is super useful if you can do that like a bespoke and you can get into that level of detail we play the probabilities here because we have to and, and and the startup has to right like within my portfolio right it is true the, that again going back to this kind of the mean and the kind of variance around the mean this time division is like you can't please all the people all the time and therefore there will be someone that says oh like i'm really pissed off because you didn't include this you know your this financial statement or you did and then and, the, and then the founder will come to me and they'll spend hours trying to correct for that and then the investor doesn't invest you can't please all the people all the time and, and in fact if anyone doesn't invest because of a b and c reasons they were never going to invest okay unless they have skin in the game don't tell me what you think show me what's in your portfolio unless they write the check and give you the advice at the same time you can discount 90 percent of it and that sounds harsh but it happens to be true and yep. it, like and it's not that all it's not that it doesn't come from a good place that's the other thing of course it's like what i don't want to do is everyone to be confused that sort of pe that these investors any investor, angel investor, all the way up to VCs or Machiavellian or terror, they're fucking not. They're it's not. Their money, they're, yeah. they're, well, more than that, actually, in, as a rule, people are nice. Like VCs, and, and again, one of the things that we, we we get the guys to think about here is they get disappointed with the process. They takes long. Of course, it's really hard to raise money. They get disappointed. They get they get pissed off with VCs or any investors for not getting back to them because they do a whole bunch of things because a VC said and then they don't invest or an investor. And I'm like, in the end, I'm like, guys, you have to understand that. It's not that the the investor or the VC are 
evil or Machiavellian or, or want to waste your time. They don't. They're just they're just people trying to get along as well, right? They have to deal typically with a fire hose of inbound, yeah. right? It's really not. It's hard for anybody just to get along. Anybody to get along. I mean, we have an investor team here, right? So on the on the one side, actually, we do sit on the other side of the table, the investor table. Like, I know how hard their job is, yeah. right? I know how hard like they've got to triage the inbound and this that and they're like, I'm sure you have to do as well. And sometimes like balls are dropped, but it's not because anyone wanted because their process was wrong. It's because people are human and sometimes you've got, it's one of the things that we do have to do. And actually, part of my job is to normalize the experience for the founders to say, look, it's not, it's some of this stuff is intractable. It's impossible. So you can say, yeah, the VC should have a better process. I'm like, no, they fucking shouldn't. Their process is the best. It's probably running it more or less the optimal process for what they should. Yeah, they're not trying to run it badly. It's then, not in their interest yeah, to run it badly. And it just happens to be the case that in the real world, you can't please all the people all the time. In other words, we're always in the bottom right-hand quadrant of the kind of the Nash, the kind of the prisoner's dilemma, right? Which we all got to take five years, okay? That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what I think about <laughs> That's what I think about life, right? It's like, no, it, and I actually think that, and again, I think this is a theory that generalizes. I'm like, and some of the problem I have is a lack of compassion for the other people like the sanctimony you could see like all over the place you can see the sanctimony on the news you can see on your facebook feed it's like you assume that someone should be doing something in a different way i'm like no 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 no. you what you don't understand is like you don't understand higher order effects you don't understand that if you think you've done something entirely coherent within the first order fails once it gets beyond the first order let me give you an example i am no donald trump fan okay but let me just give you a little vignette here so donald trump okay there's a thought experiment Donald Trump, he says... Who's who's that? (laughs) So Donald Trump, he says, okay, look, we've got a problem with immigration, right? We've got a problem with, like, people come from Mexico into the US. I'm going to build a wall. Like, I'm going to ask you a question. Is that coherent? We have a problem with immigration. We have a problem with Mexicans coming into the US. Like, there's too many Mexicans in the US. I'm going to build a bigger wall. My question to you two guys, not a trick question... Is that coherent? Well, assuming the wall is going to keep them out, then yes, it is. And he's doing it to address the problem of, in theory, illegal immigrants, which is what the fallback position is. Yeah, you're kind of okay. You're going okay. You're sorry, you're, but going, you're probably going into too much detail here. So, actually, within I call it within the bound of its own sentence, it is coherent. Of course, people like me whose economics are a little bit right of centre, you can hear, but actually my my politics are massively leftist. But I'm like, so I might I signal my virtue by going that's you know you can't do that you could but actually within the within the first order it's coherent so actually you can see how it how for people who think within the first order it makes total sense right so it's san diego where they have a border control they did build a bigger wall like some years and put more officers on there now so if you think the ultimate aim is to have fewer mexicans in the state or illegal mexicans in the states what happened was by having because there is, yes, there is a, a big influx. But you know what? There's also an outflux, right? There's an outflux because once they've made their money, they want to go back to Mexico. But here's the irony. So by building the bigger wall in San Diego, right, with more officers, they stopped the people leaving the state. So the net effect of a, bi- of a bigger wall was more illegal Mexicans in the states. That is a second order effect. Here's the funny thing. So this is kind of like a, like twisting a, a multiple metaphors here. One of the Nassim Taleb, Taleb books, I can't actually remember what, he, he tells the tells the story of the of billiard ball. And again, I'm sorry if I'm getting a bit vague on this. I can't quite remember what it is. The billiard ball example, which is 
which is you play billiards and then you and then it, the balls go in certain directions and then you do it again in order to work out the 56th position which is the 56th order here you have to know the position of every single atom in the universe mm. do you see what i mean so mm -hmm. anyone who thinks that they can so the second order you can just about get there with a lot of thought yeah. third order fourth order when things start breaking out in in, in multi dimension i don't don't just mean like like in time and the like it goes in all directions to think that you're going to know the answer there you're fucking smoking right you just can't do it this idea of getting upset because you think vc should be, like again like your sense of coherence yes but they should have a better process they should get back to me quick is within the first order but they forget that the vc is doing this 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 and like you just can't please all the like some things some things go wrong and it's intractable because it's complex yeah we were just sad we heard a story from a guest um oleg at sweatcoin um, and they got a lot of funding from a vc in the us and it was just a case of they got an email from them, they flew them out to the US, and the deal was 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 done there. Um, and previous to that, they'd been speaking to lots of VCs in this country, and they'd spent sort of three months umming and ahhing. And like, it just would have been nice if that company, that UK company, had got VC funding from the UK rather than from overseas. More the coherence of the story is that if we're going to foster potential unicorns, it'd be nice for the fertilization of our own ecosystem if they'd invested into Sweatcoin. Now, the problem, I think, with Sweatcoin is that what's your evaluatory framework for it? Because it's not been seen before. I don't know if you know Sweatcoin. That's the one where you you bet. You you, you, you get you, steps. You, you, you get you, cryptocurrency. You, you, stake, you stake your cryptocurrency on the amount of exercise that you do. That's yeah, you, you lose your, uh, earn Sweatcoin. And then I think this is another problem for the startup ecosystem as a whole. Each year, I try and take a view on the kind of stuff we're going to show to our investors over the course of the next 12 months. Every single 12 months, that will change because different buzzwords will come in, different businesses will come in. So we, as you're saying, try and draw a line of best fit forward of where we think the exciting or meaningful businesses to work on will be. And we try and network into those spaces accordingly. As technology has started to improve itself quicker <coughs> and quicker in the sort of latency periods till the next jump up, get shorter and shorter, that gets harder and harder to do. So if you'd asked me in 2010, what was 2013 going to look like, I would have had a reasonably good guesstimate of where it was going to go. Mobile was going to pull everybody together. 2013 to 2016, got a bit harder, 2016 to 2019. And then 2019 to 2022, it, it gets really hard to the point where your, your horizon in which you can try and make these guesstimates is probably 12 to 18 months. To your point exactly, I've got another, I've got another not thought experiment for you, but I've got another example of that. Okay, you guys, young guys, do you know, have you seen the Back to the Future movies? Mm, I haven't. Okay. I love this film. So the Back to the Future movies, the last one was, do you know what it is? What, what it's yes, about? Do, yeah. right, right, right. So it's all about you know, Marty McFly, he flies to the future. I think, I think the future arrived like a couple of years ago, whatever. <laughs> um, and, but the last one was made in 1989. So here's the thing. In 1989... You had things like I don't know, like you had you had flying hoverboards, you had like time machine cars, you had like shoes that tied themselves up. That was projected into the future. Okay, and what, what the future was what twenty eighteen? Like I think it was a couple of years ago. It was like two thousand sixteen. I'm sure someone yeah. like that. I don't. Um, so yeah, so the, in two thousand sixteen, this is what we're going to have, right? So this is in nineteen eighty nine. These, these these are how they were predicting the future in nineteen ninety three ninety four. The world became aware of the single biggest technological disruption arguably of all time mm -hmm. that basically is defining our entire lives the internet mm. yeah right in 1989 you will struggle i mean there were video phones yeah but like you will struggle to see anything 
that even feels like the internet and the revolution it was in 1989. Yeah. Mm. And these are like, these are the top guys out of LA. I'm sure it's not very far from Silicon Valley. Nobody was like throwing their arms from the air. What about this thing called the internet and the website? In 1989, so to your point about, and of course, why was it like flying skateboards or like yeah, yeah. flying cars? Here's why. Because the brain thinks linearly. It doesn't think in exponential terms. So what it, do, it did is it looked at the at the things that exist today, uh, cars, skateboards, and they were like, okay, well, in X number of years, up to 2016, whatever mm. it was, where, where did that, in a linear way, where are these going to end up? Oh, well, that's going to be flying. flying yeah. and, I, and, my, and, my, and my Nikes are going to tie themselves, yeah. right? But of course, what happens is, and it's, by the way, like the internet existed in, yeah. in 1989, but the point being was the single biggest technical revolution of the I think, possibly of all time, certainly yeah. within the 20th they didn't anticipate it like three years before. Yeah. Okay? That's a fucking head fuck. And, the, and, the, and like, to your point about your constant, you, you like, oh, here's the themes over the next 12 months. And you're saying, it's no, almost as soon as you've done that, it's broken. Yeah. And again, there's the, all the themes are the same here. And we're at the cold face looking at all the disruption going on. Yeah. That's the difference is we've take our platform 110,000 proposals per year trying to change you know they are a unit of change basically give or take and so we can look at some business models if you want to talk about the meta search but you can say take back what this is saying it's doing and what is it actually doing e.g it might be a logistics operator or platform and so you can see you know how people are thinking about how to change the world and we're finding it difficult and yet we're because absorbed not, in it because it is impossible it's impossible remember we were talking about like the higher order effects the 50, like you're talking so about hard. second third fourth order effects it's it's not that you can, it's not that someone can do it yeah and by the way have you ever read um philip tetlock's book the super forecasters i've read about half of it okay so the super forecasters obviously they were using well the, the various different techniques but they were a bunch of inverted commas uh, amateurs that um, that were um, predicting or, or looking to predict on a probabilistic basis kind of geopolitical events, right? Um, I think in the end they got so, and again, I don't, can't remember the detail exactly, but they got so, so successful, like they basically took over the, the, the governmental unit which was doing it or went to, or, or was absorbed by it. Now, I heard Philip Teplock, and, and, and again, I might be misquoting him, and I apologise if I am, but I think he said, look, for only for systems of a certain degree of maturity can we actually do this and what he means by that is if if you think about the weather for a minute so the weather typically as you know that they can predict the weather with mm -hmm. certain levels of confidence over the, like the next five days because it's a chaotic system so so by definition today we know what the weather is right we can see it so actually that's a mature system but today's system relative to two years time is a is an incredibly image i mean obviously it's going to be a function of the weather in two years time but it's impossible to be able to compute everything you need to compute to know what the weather's going to be in two years time. to the point where you can't even dream up a scenario where you could because as you say you need more um simulations than atoms than the universe or something crazy exactly because it's a it's a chaotic system of where things don't it, things like spike off in not just 56 orders it's like an infinite number of orders in all sorts of different directions right like feedback feed forward like this is what this is the very essence of a complex system the same thing when it comes to technology businesses and this is one of the things again that we think about here is the hubris of knowledge believing you know what the, the, what is going to be successful and we have been caught out even within our own portfolio in terms of what we think is going to be successful and suddenly something isn't and then yet something else which we didn't think it was is so there's a, like 
these are systems, early stage startups. I think it starts to change around about the Series A level, by the way. But again, I don't have a lot of evidence for that. But the, these systems, which are these early stage, they are too early to be able to predict whether they are going to be the billion dollar exits. They are too early. So we don't. So I think that some things are necessary. So in other words, you don't know enough for it to be sufficient. But I think some things are necessary. It has to be. It has to be tech. It has to be scalable. Mm -hmm. It has to be. But then there's a lot of hindsight bias or whatever you want. Survivorship bias around team, team members. Oh, this person was successful because holding for the fact that they were successful, then you pick out some of the things that they've achieved. Yeah. But the question does have that predictive power going forward. Many people have tried that and failed. Why? Because it's too fucking hard mm. and possibly impossible. Mm. Well, so giving rise to the suggestion that maybe the startup investment um, approach should always be this portfolio approach because you just simply cannot predict. You, you can try and, I believe, create a structure where you have synergistic interest potentially between your background, the company, where if it's B2B, you can lend uh, high order contacts to it and they, your companies you invest in may be useful to other companies you invest in. Sure, you, you are improving some probabilities of success, but I do agree, maybe that's why um, the going message is that people should have a portfolio of well let me, i mean let, let me the way that we view this at founders factory obviously our aim obviously we've got a portfolio of 97 as you know we've announced africa we want to be in territories around the world like we want to have or hopefully we will be sitting on if we were sitting here in seven or ten years time a portfolio of a thousand why for these very same reasons we don't believe in the like we don't believe in the heuristic knowledge we also believe in the other thing that you described there. So I know, like I know what the beta return would be on a on a portfolio of a thousand. Mm -hmm. Or I say I know. I can model what it would be, but and, because once you get to a once you get to a certain size, then maybe your median pushes to the mean, right? It's close to the mean or sufficiently close that actually you can be confident in respect of it. And so long as your dis your model distribution function, which 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 is based it, ordinarily based on historics, and maybe we've had twenty years of historics and. It's the sort of thing that someone like Nassim Taleb would caution against, but there we are. Um, but we can be fairly confident that, that that has got a certain asset value, right? Like mm -hmm. we've got investment or indirect investment into these thousand. Like we, f I feel as though that has got a certain asset value that could be somewhere close to the the mean, the industry mean, which is like a three X return, which is a fucking brilliant investment, right? But that's the beta return. But yeah. our point is we want an alpha return. Okay, so we definitely believe that we, Founders Factory, can help our startups. We 100% believe that we can help our startups get somewhere more quickly. In fact, I know we can do it. So yes, I think the B return for our investors, or, or, or indeed for us, is is kind of X. But we don't want to get the beta, we want to get the alpha, which is adding in some inputs. We don't know which ones will work. We just know that on average it will work. So yeah, so all of those things that you're saying about weighting the dice, we 100% believe that here. Well, which you've just mentioned, you're potentially opening up the South African market, uh, which Afri I think- Africa, by the way. Africa? Yeah. Well, I think we had some questions about that in, in yes, what what was the play there? So so when we decide when where we wanna go next, it's a, again, I can tell you, oh, this is the strategy. And then the reality is something else, right? Mm -hmm. And the reality is, why did we decide Africa? It's some function of the opportunity. By the way, the hubris of knowledge. Don't assume that the past, you can think anachronistically about the past. Is um, that opportunity to your existing portfolio or opportunity no, to irrespective? Us. No, okay. to, to, not to the portfolio, to us, Founders Factory. Yeah. Um, so what I mean by that is like, you can say, oh, Africa doesn't work because, we don't think like that. We're venture investors. Like Africa can work because. 
Do you yeah. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a huge blue sky opportunity. Maybe the timing's right, maybe it's not, but we're gonna damn sure make sure we can try and make it right. It's a function of finding extremely talented people, one of which is Rue, who had uh, Rue Rogers, who, who runs the, he's the CEO down there, who has experience in Africa, um, and his team, who are a great team, and then a function of the investors that we can, com- do you see what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like you can all very well say, why did, what was your thinking? And I can give you some top-down mm. platitudinal, we did A, B, and C because da, 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 which looks really good on a deck, and then there's the fucking truth, mm. yeah. which is how the world works. The mm. world does not work like it looks on a deck. Um, I think we'll change tack slightly. For sure. We, we're, um, you've uh, very bravely and openly shared a story about um, uh, mental health, and maybe you could quickly run us through that. Um, but I guess the question is there, do you see it as a problem within the industry that needs to be talked about more, and that's why you've shared it, or is it just something that you, you wanted to share? So I shared it. I shared it because what happened to me was was in my opinion, quite extreme. And and actually, I think it was representative of something which which I personally had n- would never, because I'd never, you, unless you've actually experienced it, you don't actually believe it can happen. And I, I'd never heard of it happening to anybody else. Um, and therefore, there was two reasons for doing that blog post. One, by the way, I'd never, I never told anyone anything other than what actually happened to me ever. I've never gone, oh, I, you know, I did this, I did that, I went sabbatical or anything like that. Mm. Like, it was like, where were you? I was in mental health hospital. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I just answer the question. Mm. Like, why? Well, this is what happened. Mm. So, um, so, the, so, so as yeah. So, the, the, I mean, in doing it and talking about it and, and and blogging about it and what have you was was a was to a degree cathartic. But also, I just think it was like, like I just think it's shit that that some people need to know, right? Yeah. And and um, and the reason for that was, um, I have what I consider to be an amazing, like I'm all the things that you shouldn't expect to suffer from a, um, a, a, a like to end up in. in That's in, honestly what seems so yeah. extraordinary from, right. from the outside. Right, right. In. So I think this is a cautionary tale, right? Like, you know, I had a great upbringing, like a nice family, like, yeah, all right. I went to a Northeast comprehensive school, which I'm very proud of. You know, I was never, never felt like we were under financial pressure at home. And you know, and I, I went, I got through school, did well on my exams, went to university, got a degree in law, blah, blah, you know, actually economics, and then did law, and then got a great job. To, but then at 37, 36 or whatever it was, I think it was 36, which is, too old am I now? Yeah, only 10, 11 years ago, I was walking to, and actually, this is this, this is the event that triggered it, but obviously through a lot of therapy, clearly the, a lot of it was already there, mm. by the way, this is the classic kind of the straw that, uh, broke the comes back. I was walking to my deck. I was walking to it was my deck. I was walking to my deco, and um, and like my lung collapse sound weird and like it's something which you can just cope with and you ordinarily would. Um, and I went to hospital and they fixed it and they let me go and then it collapsed again. I went back to hospital and they fixed it and I went back again. And this like went three times and then and then I was in hospital and they were like, why is this happening? And they blue lighted me to the heart hospital where I had an emergency operation on my lung. And all of that is fine, right? Like 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 as it turned out, like my lung is fine, right? Um, and in fact, physically, I was fine quite quickly. But what happened during that process was I found myself getting, having this weird other physical symptoms, which was which was like a weird kind of dizziness, right? And and by the time I came out of the heart hospital, I remember doing this, I was like all ready to go. I'd, like because because I had to exercise my lung, it wasn't like I was had to be wheeled out. I was actually feeling quite fit. And my mother, who'd come to 
picked me up, said, oh, you know, why don't you go and get us a taxi? Like just, I literally walked out the door, took half a step out and I couldn't walk any further. It was the most incredible experience. It was just like someone had just got my head and clamped it and it was like, I couldn't move, okay? And this was the start. So A, I was like, what the, f you know, what the hell is going on here? Like, and I like forced myself to go out and like, but it was so, it was like, it was like, you guys probably won't remember this, but there was a, a very famous, I think it was a Mentos advert where like, it was like a Mr. Soft was walking. It's exactly how I thought, thought about myself, like Mr. Soft walking down the street. It was like bouncing. It was like, like everything is fucking weird. And um, if only I'd taken illegal substances to get here, they wouldn't have been better. But anyway, <laughs> um, and then, yeah. And then from there, it literally just, it just went, got worse and worse. And like, I just got more and more of this, I suppose you would call it agoraphobia. Um, where I just got, I could start doing less and less and less, and I could like, I couldn't leave my room, I couldn't like, I couldn't leave the house, and I. But sometimes I'd go, of course I can leave the house. It sounds ridiculous, mm. and I like, come on, like we're just going to walk to, the, and literally three times I remember saying once to my, my now wife and girlfriend, I was like, come on, don't, of course I can, and I did this like, like probably did this ten times a week. Stop being so fucking stupid. And I, at one time, I was walking to the shops, and I broke down crying three times. And we had literally, and this was when we lived in, in Drayton Park in in Arsenal, we walked up street, if, if you guys know that. It's mm -hmm. not very far, right? And and by the time we got up street, she had to get me a taxi back to Drayton, literally like like three pound in the, the minimum in the taxi, mm. because I couldn't go any further. And I was crying. Like, and and um, in the end, like, because I got doing less and less and less and less, I ended up in, I ended up in um, my bedroom and then, and then, to run it through I like I might de I got depression this it was I got depression and then at one point I literally got so bad I actually said to my wife and by this time I was seeing a uh, Holly Street like I was very fortunate that that my deco gave me private and all this so I was very for oh, actually, actually through yeah I was very fortunate and um and I was seeing a Holly Street psychiatrist and this that, and the other and he I was on the at one point I literally woke up one Saturday morning and I'd been awake since like five and I said to my wife and I tried to make a cup of tea couldn't make the cup of tea because it was all, and um, and I literally said to her, look, if this is what life is gonna be, I don't want life. Mm. And she, <laughs> so weird, he was like 10 years later. Anyway, so, and she um, she called my psychiatrist that Saturday morning, he's like, get him into hospital now. So they brought me into what is, it was then called the Capio Nightingale, I don't know if it still is, which is like, a, it's like a, a version of um, the one all the- The Priory? Thing, the Priory, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, like a version, it's like a version of the Priory. Um, and um, and the, I was in there, they brought me in, and like they put me on suicide watch and the guy and like that night the, i was in the saturday the saturday night they came in like the guy the nurse had to come in every half an hour to make sure that i hadn't killed myself mm. and um and and like that sunday um, my mate came to see me <coughs> craig it was the single worst day of my life like it like you can't like until you've hit that rock bottom like you have no idea what the f like you have no idea what's like it's like someone's just everything you believe to be true it's just yanked it away from you and and incredibly humbling and it, and it and so in the end it took me it took me months to get over like I was still in the hospital like five week, five weeks later yeah. I still had to go back as an as an outpatient for like another five weeks every single day every single day I was doing like five or six hours of therapy every single day I mean I was fortunate that I thank God I had private to pay for it like fuck yeah. knows how you do this on the NHS um, and I was off work for like six or seven months and then I came back to my deco Obviously, worked a little bit more. Like, then did this crazy thing, which is start tribe sports, which you should not do with, with like you were a covering mental health <laughs> person. 
And then within another nine, 10 months, I like went down again while I was at Tribe Sports. It, it wasn't as bad, it was like four months or something. Mm. Um, but it was the same experience, I had to go back to the hospital. It wasn't inpatient, but I had to go back to the hospital again for another five weeks. Um, and and then I came out again, and then for the for, sort of since then until, funnily enough, almost this time last year, I'd been on this, I went, I went into the low carb, the keto, like I went in deep into like, what the fuck happened to me? How do I make sure it never happens? So like, I'm a big proponent of meditation. I'm mm. a big proponent of, of th- controlling the things that you can control. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, I would lie and say, oh, you know, stoic philosophy. I haven't read it. Like, it's not like I've <laughs> read the, med- it's not, I haven't read like Marcus Aurelius meditations, mm. but I certainly know the quotes, yeah. right? I was like, if it, if it can help me never get back there again, I will effing do it. Mm. And then, and it, and it worked. And then until I would say, where were we February so about 18 months ago like on the way to work like I had another episode and I had to stay off work from Founders Factory for about five months did you have a problem with your lung as a symptom that expressed so, so actually my, my other lung actually went down on the other side um, but no actually funnily enough once you once you've got yourself into a mental health problem funny physical things seem trivial Mm. Um, and the, I did go through another collapsed lung, but it was fixed. I never had, I didn't have the mental health problem. It's not triggered by that. It's triggered by the fact that you're, I now have, uh, you, all of us have got mental health, by the way. I now, I just, I just, it was triggered by, I don't know what it was triggered by. It was triggered by, who knows? Mm. Um, we can have theories, but who really knows? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't my lung, it wasn't physical. Um, and, um, and yeah, so I was, but I am, f- supremely fortunate that I am on Founders Factory and they were unbelievably supportive. They were like, whatever we need to do, whatever you need to do, David, like da 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 and like I had I had to have and again I went so far down, you know, I've got two little boys, right? And I had so far down I had to literally not be in my house. I'd go back to my mum's. I couldn't get out of the bedroom. I couldn't even go into my mum's kitchen. And it was and it took me another four or five months to come out of that as well. So so, so yeah, so, so, but funny enough, once I come out, this is the weird thing. This is why I'm like, like, this is weird, right? Because like, I've, I know people with anxiety, depression, but it's kind of chronic. Mine's yeah. acute, you see? So like, people with chronic anxiety, like they, they have to manage, like I can see it, I can, I can I, cause I, obviously I've been in a lot of therapy, I can see people with chronic anxiety, I can hear them, and like, but they deal with it day by day. Whereas me, like you know me from day to day, I'm like confident, you know, guy. Yeah. Um, Whereas, yeah, with me, it was just so acute and just, and it just went so deep. Mm. And then when it comes out again, I'm kind of fine again. Yeah. So, so I've been fine for, well, for, for nearly a year now and, and actually feel stronger than ever. You know, I, and I definitely do. I like to feel stronger than ever. But because it's happened a third time and it was, it was six or seven years between them, I'm like, I am now super on it when it comes to managing my mental health. I think it's, it is so important to get it right. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, that is... I like I've identified and I still see my psych- psychologist like once a week. I like I, I have various different therapists that I see. And again, Founders Factory are unbelievably helpful. I mean, they are like Henry, Brent, the guys, like everyone has been fucking amazing. And and so you like, you know, when you're sort of saying mental health and tech and this, that and the other, I'm like, actually, I don't know whether if I wasn't in this environment with this type of people, because I think as a rule, we're, they're super nice. Tech people are super nice people. I mm. genuinely believe that. Like, I don't know whether I would have had that support. I'm again. I'm like, I am so grateful that I did. Mm. And yes, yeah, and again, it's difficult to explain. Like, what, like how can someone that's got a, apparently everything, or I think I've got the best job in the whole world, how can that happen? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really important that that people in your position, who've had that and are having that success, are happy to talk about. 
things like this because it's important for people to hear. Do you know what, Ollie? So the thing that I think the thing that surprised it didn't surprise me, but the thing I think is worth mentioning when I came to fa- back to Founders Factory, there were five people that reached out to me that said when I came back I said, oh, "David, do you mind if I had a chat with you?" Mm. Now, one of them I think I probably guessed that they had a mental health problem. Four of them you would never have guessed. Okay, and here's the thing, um, and maybe it's because I'm like a middle-aged bloke, every single one of them were people that you wouldn't expect to have this type of problem. And again, this, I, th- think, I think this comes down to what should we expect some people to be, but they were like success, they were, some of them were the founders, two of them were the founders from the portfolio, like two of them were like just colleagues, not necessarily within Founders Factory, but maybe within the Founders Empire. Mm. Um, and each one of them had, they, the stories differed, but they were deaf. Some of them were like one guy was like he literally was losing feeling in his arms, and one of them was like he lost his bearings and his memory. He was in New York, and he had to be in his bed for a year. One of them was like like I can't even tell you the stories. And each and not you would never have guessed any. Well, apart from one of the five, you wouldn't have guessed the other four. And that was in the first six weeks of me coming back to Founders Factory. Um, and since then, I've probably I've probably spoken to another two more of that ilk and they all seem to follow like they've all got a similar background to me or like they're like you know what I mean you wouldn't think you just wouldn't think it mm. and and so which suggests to me a it's a massive yeah problem and I think that there are some very lazy tropes out there about and I like again I don't mind speaking truth to power or even truth to virtue signaling I think it's very lazy tropes about men frankly mm. um, and that somehow you know we have the the you know anyway I think there were some very lazy things um, um, said and I and I think the reality is again I think we should all of us express universal compassion because it's fucking hard for everybody yeah it's fucking hard it's like or it's it's hard for everyone is just trying their best to get along in in perfect situation and like if you and if you just and one of the things that I obviously this process has given me is as you can tell obviously I, I don't want to sound too spiritual but obviously I've gone through a lot of therapy mm. and, and I just think that it's understanding that, that as a rule people are just trying to do their best and I've got a little vignette on this one as well actually and I can tell you this because she knows I take the piss out of her for it mm. I've got I've got an American friend who I haven't seen for a long time now so she's probably not listening but anyway I've got an American friend who I used to work with who's, she's from New York um, and we used to go to for restaurants and stuff like that and like she never ever had good service. She never. She would go to. She, she always had bad service. Like in the end, I, like, I'm like, I'm like K. I want to say it's K. I'm like, why do you think you always get bad service? And she's like, ah, da, da, like she's all these fucking reasons. Ah, da, da. I'm like, it's not. It's how you. It, it's not external to you. It's internal to you. It's like you, like your expectations of what someone who's on barely minimum wage dealing with like 50 60 other tables like that you know that and, and like that you expect a level of perfection mm. that it's just it's never going to be achieved the reason why you always get bad service is because you can always see the, the why it's not entirely perfect for you mm. right and like it isn't it is in, impossible to be entirely perfect for you and i'm like that is i think that generalizes right people i think people can very quickly kind of victim like they fetishize being victim and they think though that person should have done this that person should have this this 
system should have this this society should have done this the government should do that mm. like Theresa may should do that like i'm no Theresa may fan right like but jesus christ like you try and do what she's trying to do mm. and like and she it's an impossible situation i'm not like i even told this i we <laughs> we had the um we had the founders factory away day like i like i pulled like i did a presentation there and some of this stuff and like i, I pulled it i actually said well, think about you know what's his name uh um kim jong-un like think about him Mm-hmm. Like he, like what is what is normative for him is that he is a god, mm-hmm. right? So he has been. So all he's ever known is that he is a god, and all of this, all of these people rely on him, or all, all of his people rely on him. He is at war with the states, but he also knows that the minute that he doesn't continue to bind this myth, he is going to get executed. Yeah. Right. Put yourself in that position with your virtue signaling. Like what the fuck are you gonna do in given that situation? I'm not saying that I'm like I I, I please don't think that I like I, I I agree with everything that he does. Like he's a vicious dictator. I know that. Yeah. But I'm like, but in the meantime, like if you put yourself in his situation and you really understand that situation because you're because you're being empathetic, not sympathetic, or you're projecting what you know onto wh- what he knows. If you if if you're able to do that and you work really hard to try and get there. You're going to have a slightly different. I'm not going to say it, you you can forgive him or whatever. I'm just saying you can have a slightly different mm. view, and you should do that for almost everyone in every system because it's fucking hard for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think that of all the things that I have learned, I think that has been the most refreshing. Yeah. Have you started to identify things that you simply will not do just for your own mental health, and and to say, look, I can't, I can't be that guy. I can't do that. This is a rule for me to ensure my own mental health. Very difficult question. Um, because again, I think it comes it comes from the inside out. Like I have, the, the, I think the difficulty for me is still like working out why the why, why the fuck it was me. Because again, you can take and th- and this is again some of these ideas are exactly the same. You can take lagging factors. The lagging factors are like I had a, I I went down three times pretty severely, um, but therefore disambiguating to understanding what caused that. They call it. I think it's called the inverse problem. So taking, taking what exists and then working backwards to see what caused it, which is the inverse of some of these ideas of working, of being able to predict what the future is going to be. It's is equally as hard to go backwards, right, mm. to work out what what are the things that caused it. So that so I, I like I'm lost in terms of that, right. But I think the things and again like. I think the interesting thing about like worrying about your mental health and then your health, like there is a, I think there's, I believe there's a function between my physical health and my mental health. Mm-hmm. I've never, I mean, I run a sports web, like it's not like I've ever been unhealthy, but I, but these are some of the things which are, and then, so I spent a lot of time, like if I'm going to make sure this never happens again, like what are the pillars that I need to put? And do you know what's interesting about that? Despite all the, you, you could listen to the Tim Ferriss's or the Bulletproofs, or you could listen to, you can read the books and you can, Actually, it boils down into some very, very simple things, and and um, and I think just like like you know, s- make sure you optimize this, and uh, like get some sleep, right? Like or mm-hmm. like you know, like it's the first thing they do in the priories, they just put people out for like yeah. a week. How do you know that? Uh, <laughs> some some, f- some well, some people I know who I may or may not be related to, but they they yeah. they put they just put you to sleep for like ten days. Yeah, and um, but but also it's like eat well, like it's eat well, but don't confuse yourself with what eating well is because you can get yourself wrapped up with low carbs, keto, it's this that and the yeah. other, and you could fucking obsessed with it, hey, right? It becomes its own neurosis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it becomes it's got, it's got, exactly so. 
I'm like, what? I'm like, just rather than what I won't do, it's like here's some here's the pillars, and one of them, like one of the early signs for me is like, I start competing against myself in terms of my fitness. Like I start competing, like I start charging into work. The quickest way to get into work. So, so, so my psychologist says to me, these are the these are the early signs, and like so, be aware of the early signs, and actually being it's like the perceiver. Once you're aware of them, yeah. That's almost enough. Yeah, well, that's because the rest works it th- works itself through. And that's kind of the whole idea with mindfulness, isn't it? That you you see the narratives that you become attached to arising, and rather than diving into them and becoming attached to them, you just acknowledge them and and, and let them be and let them play out. But, but that but, awareness. But I actually, but again, like in mindfulness. So here's the other thing about actually some of this stuff is weirdly simple um, and. Once you you can very like again if you spent the time thinking about this you can draw your line between like like mindfulness the Eastern way of thinking about things like I don't know if you guys listen to Sam Harris but like mm-hmm. the, like the disappearing head and but you can draw the line between that towards kind of Marcus Aurelius is like you know if you don't feel injured you won't be injured mm. like and then you can draw like to kind of the modern CBT therapies, you know, to the to, to, to even to like a modern mindful. In other words, funnily enough, despite all the different names they've been given, there is a there is a set of kind of it's not even that much. There's a set of wisdom that is more or less that say the same thing, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's basically that which is which is and yes, that the, the process of mindfulness or meditation is can be extreme which is you're training yourself to get better at it mm. and actually with certainly with um sort of buddhism actually you, in, in the end you disappear entirely you the self disappears entirely mm. i get that but actually it's still the same thing which is to be is to is to is to be present to be aware and once you once you identify it it kind of loses its power mm. and it's the same thing it's the same with the marcus aurelius thing it's like if you don't like if you identify that you have felt yourself to be injured again like my friend who's always mm. gets the wrong service. Like if you identify that, so the next time you have the wrong services, you identify like, like okay, this is the wrong service. Maybe it's about me and not about the. Ex- yeah, you get the sort of meta personality. Then it starts to. It starts telling you that you don't need to be that person. It starts, who right. Becomes the victim. It starts to going back to your your your. This is this is the ambition for all of us. Is it starts to sink down into your system one. It's not your system two. But if it's in your system one. Right, which is it comes, it feels habitual and it's natural. That's where you want to be, and you can only get there by practice. Mm, for sure. Right, same theme. Yeah. Right, practice, 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 yeah. and you just keep practicing, it and it ends up in your system doing. It's going to work out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, to some degree, we all have to. Um, so, so part of something that that makes me happy, and I think maybe this, hopefully, will speak to entrepreneurs, is that I can always continue to enact some form of change, and I buzz off the idea that I'm constantly able to look forward into um, a world like startup investing and improve it and make it more exciting and be part of this journey. And, and for the most part, that is incredibly rewarding. And I imagine, and I shouldn't project um, intention into you, but I hope that from 2000 onward, that was part of your excitement was being caught up in, in the web era. And we all have to sort of reconcile the fact that if you draw that line forward, you essentially have to then reconcile infinity, which is that I can be excited about where I'm progressing everything until I sort of go, I can progress it further, compress it, and then man might go to Mars, and then, and then what? And if I keep going, and then what, and then what, and then what? I get to a point where that mode of thinking breaks down, and it can turn into nihilism, which I don't know, I don't know if there's a human recipe for, and I don't think there is, which is why I think it is important to then go your direction with it, which is to say we... Some people constantly quest for something, and I think 
that's why examples like Tyson Fury and, and Mike Tyson break down because they then get to the end of their quest. They become heavyweight world champion and then it's not the destination they wanted it to be. Or you, a great example is actually um, uh, the Minecraft founder who exited for $2 billion and then he just went into complete meltdown because it, it wasn't the destination he wanted to end up at. But, he, but, here's the, but, he, but the, 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 this is a great point, right? And the reason why it's a great point is it because it never fucking is. It never. It's impossible to be so, right? Yeah. So, so this is the whole. This is the whole lesson here, right? The whole lesson is you can sort of, you can, you can plan or believe top down. This is a kind of. This is, we're, go, we're finally in Plato's cave, right? Mm-hmm. With the what is ideal. It's always going to be outside of the cave, okay? It's always is. Even if it even it probably possibly doesn't even exist, okay? But it's never. It's never ever going to be that because it just. It just doesn't exist. So when you get there. And and we and Louis and I, who's the CEO of Founders, uh, Founders Factory, we tell we tell this story a lot. It's like because he knows some pretty wealthy guys, and like I know some pretty wealthy guys. These guys are no happier than us. Mm-hmm. It comes with its own problems. It's like being a being a wealthy middle-aged white guy is not the fucking it's not the golden child. Yes. And they and they and they, that's why, by the way. Like the biggest killer of men between 25 and, and, and 45 is suicide. Like we are three times more likely to commit suicide. Like and rail the stats. And it's because it's fucking hard for everybody. Mm. And therefore we need to be cautious of lazy tropes, naive lazy tropes to make assumptions about other people. And ultimate destinations. And ultimate de- destinations because it doesn't exist. So the, so is show compassion, be empathetic and, and and kind of as best you can be kind of present and content with what you've got and understand that it actually it starts with you, not the external mm. factors. Mm. Amazing. Um, it's gone four o'clock. We've covered a lot of ground. Yep. Um, you've been extremely generous with your time. Yeah, no problem at all. And, it's been and, a lot yeah, of fun. And your thoughts. It's been absolutely great. Yeah. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's going to be a great episode, I think. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you so great. much for coming on. Well, well thank for you two thank guys. You. And yeah. Thanks. Cheers. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup mic, M-I-C, or get us an email, audioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.